Hi, everybody, and welcome to Full Marks. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. Thanks for joining us. Uh, today we're going to be talking about A Night at the Opera. That is correct. There you are. Uh, if you're just listening for the very first time, the general premise of the show is this. We're going to be going through uh, the history of uh, the Marx Brothers and their films uh, through this podcast. Uh, I'll give you a little context as to where the Marx Brothers were, then we're just going to go through the movie. Uh, my friend David here is a, would you say, a big Marx Brothers fan. Would you call yourself that? That's right. Very good. I'm a big fan. All right, excellent. Yes. And we're both trying to avoid the joke of a big fan on a hot day or something, because there's actually a fan right next to you. Felt... Both of us avoided that joke, and good for us. Good. Keeping this highbrow. Not keeping not keeping in the mark nope, for their nope. spirit. No, but... no, but uh, this is a bit more of a highbrow film than their other ones, so sure, yes, okay. we, we have highbrowed ourselves. <laughs> uh, I uh, make my living as a comedian. I write for Mad Magazine, The New Yorker, uh, Simpsons Comics, and I... Uh, I'm very aware of the Marx Brothers culturally, uh, but I have not seen all of the movies. In fact, I have not seen this movie oh. uh, before uh, uh, before today, before okay. I watched it. Okay. Well, I watched it yesterday, to be honest. Um, and so I'm coming at it from a bit of an outsider's perspective here, sure. whereas you're more, you've seen them all at least once. I've seen them all at least once. Very good. And some many times. And you have strong opinions that you're not afraid to state. <laughs> well, I don't think. I don't think I I'm hurting corrected. the movies. That was pretty wishy-washy. Sorry, my mistake. <laughs> I don't nope. think I'm hurting the movies by by being opinionated. That's fine. I Absolutely think, fine. And I think it's kind of fun. We're very Canadian, so we're just going to be apologizing sure. for our opinions as we go along. Yeah, I'm sorry to say that... Uh, we're Canadian? <laughs> that, no. I think that um, it's interesting to have enjoyed the movies as a fan for so many years, and now to watch them with maybe a more of a critical eye, like with more... I'm more, be, you know, I'm being a little more judgmental. A little more objective, sure. Yeah, no, yes, that's right. Being more objective. Well, trying to be more objective. Or maybe just being more critical in a subjective way. I don't know. I think know. we're just going through the thesaurus at this point, right? Sure. <laughs> Let me think of more words I can say to think of in a neutral, and, you know. But no, just because, you know, in the past I just watched them and I didn't think about how they worked as a, you know, how they flowed or how they worked as a, as a movie overall. Mm-hmm. I just like the jokes. I like this and that, you know. And so, it's been sort of uh, interesting to watch these movies and, and and say to yourself, hey, wait a minute, which I did during this film. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, I'd like to hear your hey, wait a minute when we get to the hey, wait a minute. We'll get to that moment. Sure, All right. Sure. Sounds very good. Um, if you would like to review this podcast, this is the stuff you got to do when you're on the internet. If you want to review this podcast, we'd uh, love you to do that on iTunes. It helps people to find us. Uh, and we'll let you know at the end of the show ways you can contact us if we are incorrect about certain things. And people have been contacting us uh, doing just that. So thank you very much. Uh, yeah, we, we appreciate, appreciate it yeah. after uh, we're sad. First we're sad. <laughs> and then the next stage is uh, appreciation and acceptance. And then the next one after that is another podcast, because that's the way this goes. <laughs> right. just got to go for it. Podcast denial. So can I just say, before we go on... You can. I just want to give a few shout-outs... Please. ...to some of our iTunes reviewers. So th- thank you so much. Some of you don't give us your name, but I'm still going to thank Reviewer LP for your for your review of the show. Thank you very much. That was on our Canadian iTunes. Mm. Uh, so that was nice to see. And then on our American iTunes... Uh, page or whatever uh we uh had a a nice a nice review from danny joseph although he did say that he is distracted by my constant uh, some uh, i would say obsessive need to correct when i say chico into chico and he said Mm -hmm. don't bother don't worry about it and quit it so yeah it it has been doubling the length of a lot of our episodes (laughs) tripling at least yeah and then we had another review from edward dragansky who said basically where have you been all my life Mm. And so we, we've been right here, Edward, and uh, 
Thanks for tuning in. Wouldn't it be creepy if it was right behind you? The if whole I was right time. behind him? Yeah. The whole time? Yeah. That'd be, that'd be creepy. <laughs> uh, we're, we're podcasting from inside your house. Sure. Yes. That'd be cooler than here. We're recording on a very hot day. That's not your concern, but I'm just letting you know if you want some context yeah. as to Next. Uh, how we're doing. Uh, David also has his notes. I don't have notes. David has notes, uh, but half of the notes uh, have gone missing, and so he's going to also be going off his phone. Yeah. So if you hear him talking smaller, that's because he's looking at a smaller screen. Oh, that's what happens. Yes. Your voice I, gets tinier. I get, I get more little-minded. Yes. Um, yeah, there you go. Well, then let us. I was going to say one more oh, thing. Oh, we're not going to begin then. Oh, which was that... Uh, False starts a go-go. Next time I have this... The, next time I decide we should do a sidecast, mm-hmm. uh, we'll do it more at a more temperate time of the year. Because <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> we're... It's hot. That's yes. all I'm saying. All right. There we are. It's hot. I, it made sense when we were like reviewing uh, the coconuts. Tropical. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it all makes sense. But it was kind of nice then. No, it's not so nice. Okay. Uh, but you know where is nice Italy, and that's where this all starts. But let's get uh, let's get uh, our daily context. Where were the Marx Brothers at this time in their life when uh, this film was made? Yeah, this was a time of big changes for the Marx Brothers. Uh, they kind of, they kind There's of faced, one less of them in this movie. That's right. They faced two challenges. One was that the Zeppo's decision to leave the Marx Brothers, and the other was Paramount's decision to not renew their contract. Well, basically, it was a one. It was a two-sided situation as we talked about last time the marks brothers signed a one picture deal to, mm-hmm. to do duck soup uh basically to make the film they took a big lump sum payout of lots of mon- money made the movie and then walked away from their paramount contract or paramount lot i guess because their contract was up yeah i'm assuming that it wasn't paramount going either zeppo's part of this or no you would be surprised how much how important it was to studios at that time that there be four Marx Brothers. Really? Yeah, yeah. It was a really, it was a really difficult. It was a kind of sticky po- point for 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 studios. They wanted the four Marx Brothers. They felt that that billing was what sold the was the, that was not that what sold it, but that was an important part of of the of now. Here's the brand. A, here's a weird question I've got for you. Just because I, they'd been the four Marx oh, Brothers, I understand since the teens. And I'm uh, I'm I'm a bit of a, a fussy fuss when it comes to words. So uh, when I watched the beginning of the movie, and just because this does relate to what you just said, <coughs> sure. um, it uh, the other ones have always said the four Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. and then they would list the Marx Brothers. This one just said Marx Brothers. Yes. Not the. Mm. Not the. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if that was just so they wouldn't have to go the three Marx Brothers, and it would be it would yeah, be odd. It's possible. So they took the the out and just went. Uh, you know, it's a day. Uh, sorry, a night at the o- opera. The Marx Brothers. Mm. Yeah. Well, not the Marx Brothers. With Marx Brothers. Like, it was weird, because it actually doesn't make sense. Yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't flow right. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was just curious about that. Well, we can talk about the beginning of the film, because it, there is an interesting thing to talk about there. But let's talk about that when we get to the beginning of sure. the film. Let's instead... Let's not start at the beginning. Let's begin at the start. Let's begin <laughs> at the start of the of story the of this time in their lives, which was that it was in the cards for Zeppo to leave the Marx Brothers. That was it. wasn't wasn't an if; it was a when. Okay. And pretty much everyone knew it. He felt guilty with the money he was making as a member of the troupe. He didn't feel like he was contributing anything to the Marx Brothers. He was doing a job he didn't want to do simply because his parents, mostly his mother, wanted him to wanted there to be four Marx Brothers mm-hmm. because they got paid more as four than they got paid as three. That makes sense. So the more family that was in the show, the more money they made. That was you know, and they built up the brand of the four Marx Brothers. With Gummo in the act, and so when Gummo left, you know there needed to be four Marx Brothers because that was the brand. 
But after 16 years as a Marx brother, about half of Zeppo's life, uh, he was no, he wasn't a voting partner of the team. He was a salaried employee, just like the chorus girls, the singers, the comedians, the dancers, and and everyone who once filled the act. He was like the last of those people remaining in the act, mm-hmm. the last salaried employee. Even though he was a family member, he still was not. He still had no say over what direction the Marx Brothers took. Uh, so he'd long been formulating his own sort of exit strategy uh, from the team. And so he kind of started off with this idea that he was going to be a screenwriter. That's what he kind of wanted his next. He kind of thought, well, this is something that I could do. and This would be my next step in life. So uh, he met a guy, a novelist and screenwriter. His name was Governor Morris, which is a weird name. but uh, And so they put together a couple of screenplay treatments. Uh, one was called Tom, Dick and Harry. And it was a story of a family from the Midwest who had fallen on hard times, sort of a depression story. Making and they're making their way to a new town, looking for like a new jobs, new opportunities, and new life. And as they're walking, the the wife gets her foot stuck in a railroad track, and the train is approaching. Mm. And the father's trying to get her free, and he can't. And so he basically just hugs her and turns to his oldest son and says, "You have to look after your brothers." And the parents are killed by the train. The rest of the movie is about the kids being adopted by different passengers and their different lives, uh, how their different lives would have been. And that was the movie. Unfortunately, no one, no one wanted to buy that film. Uh, so then, uh, another movie that they wrote was called, or another treatment they wrote was called A New Pair of Shoes. And this, uh, tells a story of a wealthy owner of a shoe factory who marries his much younger secretary. But she's having an affair with, uh, the sort of, uh, a young doctor in the town. <laughs> what a heel. <laughs> who, whose, uh, wife is in an insane asylum. So he's, so, uh, the two lovers stage, um, stage a murder to make it look like the factory owner killed his wife okay but they kill the doctor's wife uh-huh. and dress her corpse to look like the the uh, factory owner's wife and the pair of shoes thing comes from the fact that they use a this uh, particular pair of shoes these like distinctive shoes that this woman wore as sort of an identifying marker and so when the decomposing bodies found they think that it's this and so the factory owner is tried and convicted of murder but during his present sentence, he solves the crime. He figures out how what happened. And so he then is freed and receives a pardon from the governor. So the factory owner then tracks down his wife and the doctor and kills her. But I don't know if this really works, but double jeopardy. He can't be charged for the murder because he's already been tried and convicted and served time for that same murder. I don't yeah, know if I don't that think would really that work. works. Nope. I don't know if no, it really works. works at all. But that, nope. was their, that was the thing. Okay. Maybe that's why no one bought that treatment because they all went, no, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Oh, when I hear that story, I just imagine it being told, told to me by the Whistler, the old radio show. You, know? <laughs> you think you've got away with it. But what happened was... so. Um, uh, but then during the filming of Horse Feathers, Zeppo collaborated with uh, S.J. Perelman, who is obviously one of the film's writers, uh, on a treatment called Roller Coaster. And this is a story about a couple of these couple of fellows from the city who are down on their luck. Mm. And they're in this small town. And so with, a, with a, one of the small town rubes, I guess, or a hick or whatever... Uh, they purchase a rundown amusement park. But uh, this small town, even though it's a small town, there's another amusement park in the town that's a successful amusement park. Okay. And this, the owner of this amusement park is the rival of one of the guys for for the heart of this girl in the town. Okay. So the successful business park owner uh, tries to, you know, um, uh, tamper with the with their roller coaster. So he'll kill his rival. Oh, gosh. Uh, there you go. Once again. No bites. Again, the idea of a two amusement park 
small town. <laughs> like, it does make sense then that the one amusement park, no yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, folks, we apologize for sirens, but uh, sometimes people need ambulances and police cars and, and fire yes. uh, services, and we're not going to stop them just because we're doing a podcast. Yes. I don't think it's right that people would perish mm-hmm. for the podcast. Uh, and it's not right to have, like, two uh, roller coasters in the same town. <laughs> you see, see, this to me sounds foolish. It feels like those two should merge and become the most amazing, huge fairground. That'd be great. Yeah. You know, two merry-go-rounds. Uh, you know, all the snacks. Oh, that'd be great. Why don't they do that? <laughs> why, why, why all the murder? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That was the story. Okay. Uh, then he wrote a treat. Then oh by gosh. himself, Zeppa wrote a treatment called Musclebound. And he intended this one. He actually had like a goal, you know, like a, a target in mind for this. It was Universal Studios. And they, they were going to start making films for an actor named Slim Somerville. And an actress, Zezu Pitts, who we ta- we've heard about before, because she used to um, perform in a in some shorts with uh, Thelma Todd, okay. who acted in Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. So this story is uh, it's about a country doctor uh, who's forced by hard times. These stories are always based in the depression. Wait, wait, is so. Slim actually Slim? Is that the gag that he's a skinny guy? I think so. Yeah, that's the bit. He's a Don That's Nazi type, and he's it's called sure. muscle bound. Sure. All right, gotcha. So this country doctor is forced by hard times to work in a drugstore filling prescriptions. But he's attempting to develop a liniment that will cure just about anything as well as provide strength and, and, and endurance. Okay. And so, at the, t- at the time, because they were very popular, Seppo incorporated a six-day bike race into, a, into the plot, which, which the doctor wins, either through guts and determination or by applying this liniment. All right. I'm not too sure which, which would be the thing. But despite some... Universal showed some interest in it, but in the end, they didn't use it. But what's weird is that a couple of years later, First National Pictures made a Joe E. Brown vehicle called Six Day Bike Rider that used a lot of elements mm. from Seppo's story. But he'd already abandoned screenwriting by this point. I probably didn't even care that they, okay. <laughs> if it happened that way. He didn't care. So the next thing he did was in 1933, Seppo bought a 50% share in a failing cafe called Perry's Brass Rail for $10,000. Uh, and he made a few changes. In- he instituted singing waiters who wore period garb and pasted on handlebar mustaches. That was his big change. Okay, so that's uh, going to get in the food. All right, fair enough. But uh, but basically, it was a bar that sold sandwiches, was basically what it was. Mm-hmm. It was uh, but by November, he had sold his share, so he had moved on from that. Oh, okay. So then... I keep I keep hoping for this guy. I'm like, and then it became very successful. So no. finally, okay. in March of 1934... I just want to know if the handlebar mustache thing worked. Was it a successful business? It turned it around for a little bit, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, I think, right. he, I think he... I think he made made uh, some money back on his nice. on the deal. All right, please continue. So in March of 1934, uh, Zeppo finally uh, jumped. He yelled Geronimo and jumped out of the plane. Uh, at first, he formed a short-lived talent agency called Bren Orsadi and Marks. Okay. Uh, which kind of through no fault of his, it quickly fell apart. Uh, and although it was rumored that he would then join another small firm, small firm coincidentally called Morris Small Arthur Landau Agency. Uh, he actually opted just to go in on his own and start his own agency. Uh, so, because basically what he, at this point, it was the perfect moment for him. Duck Soup was completed. Yeah. His parents were gone. There was no contract. There was contracts in, you know, they were attempting to find, they're attempting to sign a contract. They're attempting to get a movie deal. And so Zeppo, it was kind of like act first, you know, like, like get out of here. So he just, uh, he left. He wrote a letter of explanation, uh, to Groucho. He said, I'm sick and tired of being a stooge. 
You know that anybody else would have done as well as I in the act. When the chance came for me to get into the business world, I jumped at it. I have only stayed in the act until now because I knew that you, Chico and Harpo, wanted me to. But I'm sure you understand why I've joined Frank Rosati and his theatrical agency. And you forgive my action. Wish me luck. Which, I mean... And, and did they? Oh, yes. They were All a very right. close family. They never... <laughs> they wouldn't... Um, so, as I said, the Marx Brothers contract with Paramount expired as soon as filming was finished on Duck Soup. So, basically, they... Uh, you know, like they kind of uh, Harper went by boat, and uh, you know Groch went by train, and Chico found his way there. They all kind of went. They converged on New York, and uh, they went there to meet uh, with Sam Harris, the former producer okay. of the stage versions of the Coconuts and Animal Crackers, about a proposed production of Coffin or Iskins of the thing. They wanted to do like a stage version of this. This was like their next, you know, the, the usual thing when when they. Things were kind of up in the air with the movie business. They immediately turned toward the stage as, as the, the their preferred. That's where they felt comfortable. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but so the cope, you know, we talked about last time the fact that the, this guy named Sam Katz was trying to put together a production deal with the Marx Brothers that he was going to use uh, United Artists as the distribution arm of it, and he would you know put the money up front for the films and stuff for like that, and then the financing didn't come through. So this was kind of still sort of floating in the air at this time, the, the idea of them doing Of the Icing, which was a f play that George Kaufman had no interest in the Marx Brothers doing because he felt that they would ruin it. And not, not ruin it in the sense it would be bad, but it would just it would change the idea what the play was into a Mar making it a Marx Brothers vehicle would change what the play was. Yeah. Um, so it was, so then it was announced that Harris would be getting into motion picture production, most likely with the Marx Brothers, and most likely it would be a production of Of the Icing. And then most likely it would be distributed by United Artists. So these were sort of the rumors that were going around at the time. So while the wheels within the wheels turned, uh, the Marx Brothers kind of kept busy. For when um, Harpo um, at Alexander Wilcott's, the, the critic, critic and journalist, at his instigation, Harpo traveled to Russia to perform in Moscow and Leningrad. So it was quite a of course at that time, you know, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were, you know, kind of not very good not they're not they weren't yeah. bad it's just that the after the revolution russia was a very inward looking country and so by this time they were starting to look outward and trying to establish diplomatic relations with countries around the world and so it was actually through maxim Lit litvinov who was the he would have been the soviet foreign minister second only to stalin so it was through his um through through wolcott talking to him that's what got harpo the opportunity to go to the soviet union and so, um, so the trip had originally been planned a year earlier, but then there was all, all the business deals, the death of their dad, and then filming Duck Soup got in the way. And so here was the opportunity for him to go. And so he took, took the opportunity. He went by ocean liner to France, where he went to hear this harpist who he'd heard of, who was supposed to be the, one of the best harpists in the world. He went there to see her play and visit with her. And, you know, because he loved the harp, so yeah. he went there. And then he went on from there. He went through Germany, where he saw horrible things happening. This was the time when Jewish merchants and stuff like that were being shut down by the Nazis. Yeah. So quickly moved on from there into the Soviet Union. And his initial experience in the Soviet Union was kind of bad. Like, it was kind of rough. He uh, was given a, a woman to look who was supposed to look after him, basically, you know, to take care of him, make sure he what, didn't go too far off the beaten path, yeah. and basically to sort of spy. Uh and then the the officials that he was dealing with were really terrible to him. And basically, he just thought, mm. well, you know, I don't want to be here. I just, I'm just i going to head home. Like So So then uh, what happened was that um, the Maxim Litvinov's wife, whose name was Ivy, she called 
and to convince him to stay. And so she kind of used her husband's muscle to get to kind of grease the wheels for Harpo. And so suddenly these officials that had been so belligerent and awful kind of disappeared and suddenly new guys were there happy to help and make everything great. And so he had he had two journalists, who friends of Wolcott's, who Wolcott had basically assigned to look after him when he was there. And then they, uh, from the uh, Moscow Art Theater, they kind of assigned two actors to help him as well. Because uh, because the Moscow audience were very literal-minded, They it was felt that they probably wouldn't enjoy or understand if Harper just went on stage and just kind of goofed around, just mm. clowned, clowned around. They needed something to understand. They needed to understand what was the motivation for what he was doing. So these are two actors. So they basically created a plot and he was incorporated into it. He had no idea what the plot was. They never told him what the plot was, but they just made up a plot and then he was, he would do his little bit. So he would do like the knife dropping routine. He'd, you know, do the leg holding. He'd do the whatever, all his little bits and stuff like that. Plus he played the harp right. as part of it. And they wouldn't have seen the Marx Brothers movies over there. You know, I don't think so. I doubt it. At the time, I doubt yeah, that there was much, not. much exchange between yeah. the two countries. Yeah, for sure. So it's all fresh to them. Yeah. It's all, yeah, yeah. And apparently, like, his, after his first performance, he had like a 20 minute ovation from the audience. They loved, mm. they loved him. So, um, and so, yeah, the two actors, he, he nicknamed the actors. One, he nicknamed, uh, George S. Kaufmanansky. <laughs> and then the other one was Maury Riskendorf. <laughs> so, uh, but at the end of his stay, this is according to Harpo. At the end of his stay, Harpo was visited by the, by the U.S. ambassador who wanted him to smuggle out some pa- secret papers in a pouch that would be attached to his leg. And Harpo agreed. But as it got closer and closer to the time, he, f- he started getting so nervous, he started to develop a limp, a pronounced limp in that leg, because he was just so nervous about it. <laughs> but he did get it. He did get out okay. And did he bring the papers out? He did well? bring the papers out. Yeah, yeah. When he got to America, he wasn't allowed to leave his cabin on the, on the, the ocean liner until the, until government agents came and removed the papers from him. Yeah. Uh, so meanwhile, uh, Chico and Groucho, um, got a, uh, started a second radio series in March of 1934 called The Marks of Time, which is kind of a play on the radio series, The March of Time. The newsreel uh, series wouldn't start until 1935, so a year later. So it was a par- more of a parody of the radio show. So the show was sponsored by American Oil, uh, but only lasted about eight weeks. And, uh, so the idea of the show was that it was a spoof on current events with Groucho playing a reporter named Ulysses H. Drivel, and then Chico playing his assistant, Pinelli. Which Ulysses H. Drivel, by the way, is a terrible name. Okay. That's your opinion, or is that just history? No, that's, has that's my opinion. <laughs> Very good. I don't know, just, you know, some of them are good. Yeah. Rufus T. Firefly, it's good. Yeah. Ulysses H. Drivel, not so good. All right. But while staying in New York to work on the radio show, uh, work was attempted, they, they continued to try to bring the Marx Brothers back to Broadway. So they had various writers involved in this project, which was to be produced by Max Gordon, the man who negotiated the Brothers Three Picture deal with Paramount. Uh, it had writers there, George S. Kaufman, Moss Hart, Ben Hecht, Charles MacArthur, and Gene Fowler. So all these kind of heavyweights of Broadway all were trying to put hammer out this, this Marx Brothers project. And Groucho joked in a letter to Arthur Sheikman that it's becoming a, as big a craze as Mahjong, writing a show for the Marx Brothers, and I predict that it will sweep the country. <laughs> so uh, now, And then in August of 1934, Groucho played the lead role in a summer stock production of the hecked MacArthur play 20th Century, which had just come out as a movie at that time. But so I guess this little theater in this uh, town of Skowhegan, Maine, the Lakewood Theater put on this production and they got Ar- Groucho to play the lead role in it. And he actually 
did quite well, got like good good reviews for his performance, oh, great. and really enjoyed it, and could kind of see a future for himself outside of the Marx Brothers, sure. because rather than being a comedian, you know, he say, well, I could be a comic actor, you know, I could do that, you know, be a character actor. Despite all this activity, there's still all the wheeling dealing going on in the background. The brothers had not been able to find a movie deal since they had left the Paramount, Paramount lot in February 1933. So we're talking August 1934. So it's been a long time since they've been. Um, so now we talked a little bit about it last time, but the myth of Duck Soup is that it was a failure and that the Marx Brothers left Paramount because of the failure of Duck Soup. And that is not true. Duck Soup was not a failure. All of the Marx Brothers films made money. Duck Soup didn't, maybe didn't make as much money as the other movies did. And that could have something to do with the Depression. It could also have something to do with changing tastes in comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, movies that were absolute nonsense, you know, might have appealed to people in the early 30s coming right out of the, right out of the crash and stuff. And you just wanted to, you just didn't want any reality in your movie. You just wanted craziness. And that's, you know, because you just wanted to escape from your life. Yeah. Or maybe they've seen this move, this same group before. So it's yeah. not as fresh. And, yeah. you know, you do the same comedy over and over again. Eventually people are going to get used to it and mm-hmm. you got to change it up. Sure. Like I say, they had made good money. So Chico was in negotiation with um, a guy named Emmanuel Cohen, who had been part of charge of put in, been put in charge of Paramount after uh, the firing of BP Schulberg. And so it, he was responsible for trying to bring Paramount back from the brink of disaster. And he recognized that, like I said, all the Marx Brothers movies had been financial successes. But here's the thing: he wanted all of them back. Remember we were talking about this before. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want three; he wanted four. And so there's like rumors in the papers, like, if Seppo won't come back, are they going to bring Gummo back into the act? Of course, Gummo's like, I'm going to stay in New York. I'm not, I'm not heading anywhere near this problem, you know. Uh, and so then, uh, negotiations, anyway, it didn't really matter because ne- negotiations eventually broke down, basically over the old disputes about money owed to the Marx Brothers as part of the profit participation in monkey business and, or- and horse feathers. Uh, so as part of the deal they negotiated when they signed the contract for Duck Soup, they, had agreed that they would abide by an audit performed by, you know, a recognized accounting firm, Pricewaterhouse. Uh, but this issue was not resolved until 1961, when Paramount was released from all claims on the films by the Marx wow. Brothers for a payout of $38,500, which would be about $300,000 yeah. now. So it wasn't like a bad payout. But it took not, a long time yeah, to get... that's too long for, for yeah, that, yeah. Yes, yes. Dragon, this is Bleak House. It's the, you know, it's like Dickens' story of the uh, the courts, the kind of... What were the courts then? In Bleak House? Ch- Chancery Courts, I think that's oh, what I'd they... I'd have to listen to our Bleak House You have to go uh, back podcast. to our Dickens, yeah. yeah. Our Dickens. What, the Dickens? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good... Everyone yeah. look, at, look, look for that on right iTunes. Let me just say right now, I'm not doing that one with you. Look, look at that on <laughs> iTunes. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna make if Ian... anyone else wants to send in their audition tape for <laughs> What the Dickens, the all Charles Dickens podcast, gonna... you, send it, you send it to Dave. We'll give you the address at the end of the show. Uh, that one, that one, I'm, I'm, I'm passing on. Okay. You know, I I'm read, pulling a Zeppo on that one. I read, I've already, I already, I read most of the Dickens books chronologically. Yeah, actually. of course you have. Of it course was, you have. It was fun. Yes. Uh, so then Chico was in talk with Fox Studios. Uh, they were rumored to be interested in the Marx Brothers and also Samuel Goldwyn, who was a friend of Harpo's and he was willing to produce a Marx Brothers picture. But then he made a interesting and kind of disinterested recommendation. He said that I would produce a film for you for sure. But who you got, you guys want to talk to is Irving Thalberg at MGM. Cause I think he'd be perfect for you. Hmm. And so Chico knew Thalberg because they played bridge together. So he said, well, we're bridge buddies. So this, is, this could be good. So, so, um, now Irving Thalberg, who was called the boy wonder, uh, he started, uh, well, he basically started as a teenager 
working as a an office assistant for Universal Studios in New York City. He requested the to have the opportunity to go to the studios in California, and he went out went to visit the Universal Studios. And interestingly, he had some opinions about what he saw there, and he said to Carl Lemley, the the president of Universal, who you know, what did said, what do you think? And he told him, "Here's what I think you need. I think you need studio managers. I think you need people who will oversee productions to make sure that." you know, to give them a cohesion, because what you have right now is a lot of chaos and no, and no directive, you know, no direct, uh, no one, you know, no one with any kind of real say over what's happening. So, and Lemley said, well, that's brilliant. Uh, you know, you're hired. And, and, uh, Thalberg was like, what? You know, he was, <laughs> he was 20 years old and he became basically yeah. the, the vice president of, of Universal and he was in charge of production. And so he oversaw all, all of the productions that Universal was doing. And, uh, so he was famously quiet spoken. He wasn't, he never got excited. He actually had a really bad heart condition, a congenital heart defect that was supposed to limit his life. He wasn't supposed to be able to live past 30. Oh. So, you know, he's had to get his life in and, but he loved movies and he loved to be part of the, the creation of films. And, uh, so he started Universal and basically the first thing he did was he, he famously shut down this film that was being filmed by Eric von Stroheim called Foolish Wives. It was, the edit at that time was at five and a half hours for film length, and Stroheim was still filming. That is foolish. So basically, <laughs> Thalberg basically uh, had him brought into the, you know, had him come into the office, mm-hmm. told him, your film is done, your picture is finished. All right. Pack up the wives. Pack up send, the wives. Send them home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're going to make a, we're going to make a shorter edit of your movie. And of course, Stroheim was outraged and blustered and carried on and stuff like that. In fact, when he came in, because he was also at, he also was acting in the movie. All right. He came in dressed in full military uniform. So here's this mild little Irving Thalberg, you know, 20 year old kid, this, you know, prestigious German director who was the star of Hollywood, you know, uh, dressed in, as a, covered you know, in medals. covered in medals and wearing, you know, his riding boots and, uh, you know, dodpers and carrying a crop probably and, and, uh, and Thalberg just told him, uh, yeah, that's that's it. You know what would have been a good move on uh, Thal- Thalberg's uh, part? Would have been uh, to, to wear that same outfit. And then just when he when he came in wearing the same outfit, go, oh, this is awkward. Anyway, speaking of awkward, <laughs> uh, we're uh, cutting your uh, movie. That would imply that he had a sense of humor. Hmm. Um, Nothing I've heard so far doesn't say he did <laughs> or didn't. So, yeah, he edited the uh, five and a half hour film down to three hours. That was considered to be more manageable. Still, still pretty seems, long. Still seems For a silent long. film. That's really yeah. long. And actually, Stroheim was really out. And of course, he also came with all his flunkies behind him, Stroheim. So it was this big group of people all surrounding Thalberg, who unflinchingly basically uh, tore a strip off Stroheim, uh, Stroheim calmly, yeah. friendly, you know, in a friendly way. He didn't get angry and yell and whatever. And when Stroheim said he was, you know, going to beat him up, Thalberg said, I'd like to see you try. Mm. You know, he, he didn't, he did not flinch. Uh, and then Stroheim continued to carry on exactly the same way as if, Thalberg hadn't talked to him. He was uh-huh. next thing this film called Merry Go Round. He was just spending millions on it. So Thalberg fired him. Told him that he was intentionally sabotaging the studio. Yeah. And I'm just, by the way, I'm just picturing Zeppo over there going like, "Yeah, they told me they didn't want roller coaster. Let me just see what they're up to right now. Merry Go Round. Oh, <laughs> we were so close. This... We're so close to the Zeitgeist. <laughs> well, he's a little off because Merry Go Round was a silent film. Oh, very good. Uh, yeah, I think. Um, I think. Thalberg started with with, with um, Universal in the, in 1920, so a lot of his career was through the silent era, even before silent movies. In fact, he was kind of a stick in the mud in the sense that he didn't think that 
he didn't think that si- sound would su- supplant silent movies. Okay. And he also couldn't see any value in Technicolor films as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it was interesting. Even though he was very innovative in some ways, in other ways he was yeah, yeah. very... Uh, um, so then, after a while at being at, at Universal, and it's thought that, that because um, Carl Lemley didn't want his daughters falling in love with Thalberg because of Thalberg's heart condition, mm. he, um, he uh, kind of put it out that he didn't want, you know, this happening. And so that... Thalberg felt kind of unwelcome then, and sort of sort of made made a little hot there for him. So he put it, put out feelers in the in the community, saying he was looking to go to a new studio. And Cecil B. DeMille wanted to hire him right away, but his partner didn't want him to, probably because he his partner was the producer of Cecil B. DeMille's films. So basically, he was being going to be supplanted by Thalberg. Sure. Yeah. And so what? So then uh, Louis B. Mayer at Met, at what was then Metro uh, hired hired Thalberg and made him vice president. Uh, in charge of production at MGM, so second only to himself. Um, some of Thalberg's innovations that he brought to filmmaking were one of the story conference. So no movie was made before there was a firm script in place. That was a Thalberg rule. You did not start shooting with a camera until you had absolutely had... Yeah, makes sense. You didn't start a movie. And I mean, part of that makes sense. The convention of silent films, because they came out of a rough and sort of ready time, was that you do just sort of make up your movie as you go, because you were just shooting silent films. You know, and the film stock wasn't super expensive. You could you could afford to burn a little during your production of your movie. That's weird hearing that. Yeah, yeah. I also think a film is so expensive. Yeah, and I mean to to the productions. I mean, they right. already had other expenses that you know, like I mean, when Buster Keaton made The Navigator, he bought a a, a def- derelict ocean liner to film on. I mean, that's a big expense up front for a movie. <laughs> um, and actually, Buster Keaton was one of the people who suffered at the hands of Irving Thalberg. I always I'm always kind of um, of on the fence with Irving Thalberg because on one hand I can appreciate the quality that he brought to movies but at the same time I know that he's the man not directly responsible but mostly responsible or muchly responsible right. for Buster Keaton's artistic demise at, at the hands of MGM well if it makes you feel any better uh, he's dead now so it's uh, it's okay it's over Thalberg also Buster Keaton yeah they're all dead it's okay mm-hmm. no. move on it's I'm fine. S- still resentful you know what? Let it go. No. Yeah. No, I'm not going to. He's going in the to. ground. There's no reason you should be holding on to that uh, resentment. <laughs> no need for it. It's, it serves no, no one. He he also instituted the sneak preview ah. with commentary cards. And he, he also uh, brought in the concept of rewrites and reshooting a film that wasn't going well. Sure. And one of MGM's nickname one of MGM's nicknames was Retake Valley because of their, uh, well, his insistence on reshooting when necessary. And one of my, one of the favorite stories about Thalberg was with the film Ben-Hur, uh, the 1925 version, yeah. obviously, which when he started MGM, he inherited this production of Ben-Hur, which was millions of dollars in the red. It was being shot in Italy at huge expense. And basically the general feeling at the studio was, let's just pull the plug on this, just take a loss and we'll forget about it. And Thalberg said, no, what we have to do is spend more money. This is going to be a prestige production and it's going to bring, you know, real it's going to make our studio seem really big in the public's eyes. So we have to make this work. We got some gravitas. Yeah, and so basically what he did was he didn't like he didn't like remote shoots. He didn't like people shooting in foreign places. He didn't want that. So at great expense, another few millions of dollars, they built all the sets at the MGM lot. Wow. They rebuilt all the sets for Ben Hur and reshot most of the movie there. But when it came out, it was a huge smash, a giant success, and it was a real you know jewel in the crown of MGM and really really helped the reputation. So, like I said, so um, Chico was playing bridge with uh, Thalberg, and so they kind of began casual negotiations, and 
Thalberg saw great promise in the Marx Brothers, uh, even if he was kind of disturbed that there's only three of them. When he playfully asked if they would, would come, if they came cheaper without Zeppo, Groucho replied, "Don't be silly. Without Zeppo, we're worth twice as much." Now, Louis B. Mayer was absolutely opposed to signing the Marx Brothers. Why uh, was this? Because he felt they were washed up. He felt their old hat and that their time was over and that they weren't a viable option. But Thalberg, who kind of had his own production comp- his own production unit, and could kind of go over the head of Mayer because he had a direct line to Nicholas Skink, the who was the money man in New York. Uh, he so he was able to uh, to sign the Marxes over Mayer's objections. But it's important to note that Louis B. Mayer did not like the Marx Brothers, and probably that made him like them even less that they were signed over his over his dead body. Mm-hmm. Um, now the M- the MGM contract paid the brothers well, and also gave them fifteen percent of the gross, which they were very happy with. The Paramount contract was to have paid them 50% of the net profits, but they never saw any of those. So this seemed better, I guess, somehow. Yeah, it's that scam. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah I've, sp- I've, I've signed that deal in the past. That's, that's yeah. yeah that's the Forrest Gump deal where no one's made money on the movie yet, even though it was incredibly successful. Is that right? Sorry. Yeah. That's the same thing happened with Coming to America, right? For um, uh, the the journalist who wrote the, the story it was based Art on. Art Buckwald? Yeah, that's right. He never... He was supposed to get a cut of the gross, but I never saw, never saw a mm-hmm. bit of it because the movie never made money. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a story by Max Gordon, who, like I said, was an agent for the, acted as an agent for the Marx Brothers, and was going to get 10% of their Paramount, uh, payout when they got their 50% of, of the gross, which they never earned. And there's a story, one time he was talking to Gummo, and Gummo said, Max, we're a thousand dollars away from you finally getting, uh, so you're getting your 10% of this. So, but it never really happened. So it's interesting. He said that. So that's how honest they were. That they were still thinking about that, even though it was years later. I don't know if he was alive when they finally got the payout, but he should have got ten percent of the thirty-eight thousand five hundred. Yeah. If he was, that was, well, he still was alive actually. So maybe he did. He deserved it, and they probably did pay him. Because uh, when he went, because when he went bankrupt, um, Harpo gave him four thousand dollars, and Groucho said, "Just let me know whatever you need. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you the money. Don't worry about it." Oh, that's nice. So yeah, they were very, they were very good to their friends. Yeah. As Groucho says, that shows a good spirit. That's right. <laughs> Love that. Um, so, so here's here's the thing. So Thalberg brought them in. He was talking to them, and he told them that he thought Horse Feathers and Duck Soup were funny, but they weren't good movies, which got Groucho really angry. He said, well, "I don't think Grand Hotel was such a great movie. What do you think about that?" <laughs> which made Thalberg happy because he actually liked people who talked back to him. But uh, see, to Thalberg, he had this idea that it was women who bought movie tickets, not men. So you know, husbands and wives, that was the wife who made the decisions on where the money went in a, in a family. And so if she didn't want to go see a movie, the family didn't go see a movie. All right. And so movies had to appeal to women. And he thought, to him, what the Marx Brothers dealt in, which was what he thought was this illogical dialogue and equally illogical premises were off-putting to women. They wanted... There's a bunch of boys playing around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so they needed to be funny in movies. But the movies had to have a convincing story mm-hmm. and heartwarming romances. Now, back then, would people see a movie more than once? Would Ye- they go back? Yes. Okay. They would. Like, to me, what I would think, if you want to, the flip side of that, it's not necessarily that the women decide whether you're going to go or not. But if you, go, if you go on a date, and at the end of the date, the movie ends with chaos. <laughs> yes. Um, 
it's very difficult then to spark the romance after that because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you just watched uh, manic energy. Yeah. Whereas if, if there's at least a hint of a love story mm-hmm. and the couple gets together, yeah. you got a chance now to oh, there and you so you know yeah, the fellows would be just like, listen, sure. what movie do I want to see that's going to be the best use of my? <laughs> mm, and then she, mm, and then we all, mm, and then and uh, yeah. it's good times. It's hard to put your arm around your girlfriend when guys are fighting in a barn. That's right. Yeah, and uh, throwing fruit at a lady. <laughs> That's a real elbowing her in the ribs one, huh? Good one, huh? So, yeah, he had uh, two different two different um, an- analogies he would give to people to describe movies, what he thought were great movies. One was the football analogy, which was his idea that a good football game should end with the team you want to win behind at the end of the at near the end of the game. Yeah, and then you have a comeback victory that brings your team. Yeah. The winning points, and the movie ends with that high. Yeah, everyone jumps up and cheers. Yeah. And then he also had what he called the clothesline concept, which is that sequence follows sequence in order. So your movie had clearly marked out scenes that followed a progression to the end of the movie, and sure. you did not you did not veer from that. So you could have jokey things happen, but within that jokey thing, it, it had to forward the film. It couldn't stop the movie. It had to keep the movie going. Right. Right. So whereas in the past, horse feathers, duck soup and stuff like that, the Marx Brothers scenes, for instance, the the peanut vendor sequences would be a prime example of this. Those are movie stopping moments because they don't forward the plot. No, they could be in a completely different movie. They could be in any movie. That's they right. They could just be a series of shorts. They could be, be out of the fine. movies. Yeah. They don't They don't exist anywhere in the universe of, of what's happening in, in the overarching story of duck soup. So to him, that was an, a movie making no-no. Right. It felt like Duck Soup was more like a series of sketches with a theme mm. than a film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so now, what's interesting with Irving Thalberg was that he was a notoriously busy man. Uh, he had, you know, he was the head of production for all of MGM. So he was looking after, and he was mostly involved with the big prestige projects. Things like The Good Earth, Grand Hotel, these big movies. It was his idea, actually... One thing that he did, I thought that was interesting that he did was a change, which which was to combine stars in a movie. So when when the depression started to happen, and people and the public interest started to die down on films because of the straightened circumstances, he thought, well, what we can do is double up the stars in a movie. So mm. he started introducing a movie with two stars. So you'd have William Powell and Myrna Loy. You'd have Clark Gable and blah blah blah. Whoever Clark Gable. Myrna Loy. <laughs> probably no, probably. Um, uh, Gene Harlow, yeah. All right. Clark Gable and Gene Harlow. Cause I'm thinking like Red Dirt and stuff sure. like that. And then, so, you know, and then, and then he came up with the even bigger idea of like a movie like Grand Hotel, where you have like five big stars in the movie. You have John sure. Barrymore and Lionel Barrymore and, and whoever else is How in it. How are you not going to see that? Gene Harlow is in it, I'm pretty yeah. sure. And, uh, that big guy who, who was in, um, Ma, no, is in, uh, what was his name, that big actor? Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I can't think of his name. Sorry. It's yeah, fine. I can't answer it from can't answer that, that big guy. Yeah. From back then. Steamboat Bill. No. What was the movie that he was in with, uh, that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It's going to bug I'm me for. Steamboat Willie or is this Mickey no, Mouse no, you're talking about? Because <laughs> that guy is pretty big. I'm not thinking about Mickey Mouse. All right. He's not as big as, as this person. Uh, jeez. It's going to bug me for a while. I'm sure people, are, I know you're screaming into your By the way, headset. Uh, Mickey Mouse is bigger than whoever this guy is you're talking about. I'm talking physically. How do you know? You don't know scale-wise how big uh, Mickey Mouse is. Well, I've seen him stand on the wheel of a, of a steam steam. That's boat. true. And you have boat. been to Disneyland and you have met him. I have. So yes, I've met him in person. <laughs> I've met him in person. Uh, so, Thulberg, uh, basically, when he had a meeting with you, yeah. you waited for Thulberg. Sure. Because Thulberg was a busy man. Yep. So, you came into the office. 
and then you sat and wait. Sure. He was a real Lorne Michaels of his day. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes people would wait for hours mm. to, for him to come. And it wasn't being malicious. It's just that he was really busy. He had all these meetings and things like that. And he tried to, you know, put you in where he thought you'd fit. But then things would happen that would lengthen meetings or he would have fires and things like that. So, um, cause one thing about Thalberg that is unanimous is anyone who worked with him just said he knew exactly how to make what you were doing better. And he could see the problem with your film right away. If yeah. you had like a problem, he could come in and say, this is what you need to do. That's what you want. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. And so, uh, now the Marx brothers were not people who you would, who like to be kept waiting. So the very first time this happened, they didn't know what was going on. They're like, well, we're here for our one o'clock meeting. What's happening? They're waiting. It's two o'clock. What's going on? So then they started smoking cigars and blowing them under Thalberg's door. <laughs> and finally Thalberg came out in a panic. Where's the fire? And they said, here's the Marx brothers. Which he did not appreciate. The next time he kept them waiting, they thought it would be a great, great fun to pile up all the office furniture in front of his door, which they did. Uh, they just piled up all these filing cabinets and <laughs> desks and stuff like that and, and put them in front of his door. So he had to push, push his way out of his office. <laughs> and then the third time that happened, yeah, they thought, well, what's the, you know, well, we've already third time that it happened. It's his fault for making them wait, <laughs> right? The third time, fool me three. I times, think the first time, shame on, whatever. So this time they yeah. thought it'd be great fun. They stripped naked. Yeah. Well, first they got some potatoes, stripped naked, and then sat and cooked potatoes in his fireplace in his office. So when he came in, they were sitting around, uh, just sitting there in their... All together. All together. There you go. Their birthday suits. Right. Roasting potatoes. And he made the right call this time. He called down to the commissary and ordered some butter. So he, I think he Hopefully finally... Hopefully for the potatoes. Finally got... Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't Last Tango in Paris. Um, I thought you were going to say with that story... Mm-hmm. That he would always make people wait. Mm-hmm. So the Marx Brothers showed up. and Because all your previous stories of the Marx Brothers was everyone would show up late. Yeah. Only Zeppel would show up on time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, this might work. That they, they ended up actually being on time actually, for the first time. Being. Because, you know, both of them were always so late. They sure. synced up. But nope, they were naked with potatoes. That would have been my second guess. <laughs> eventually. So um, the writing on the film started uh, in October 1934. This was a... And there was a series of drafts written by uh, a studio writer whose name was James Kevin McGinnis. And basically, he just did a series of treatments all through October. And so basically, every four days, he put in a treatment. And so the first, in his first outline, uh, Groucho plays a fly-by-night wrestling promoter who comes to Milan in search of wrestlers to fight back home. Okay. He negotiates with Pio Barone, Italy's finest wrestler who invites him to an opera at La Scala. Mm. Here, he sees the greatest operatic tenor in Italy, played by Harpo, who is supposed to sing Pagliacci. Uh, Chico is Harpo's voice, uh, voice coach. Once again, the greatest in Italy, apparently. Everyone's greatest in this, yep. in this movie. Grosha discovers that Harpo earns more than a wrestler in the U.S. and becomes very interested until Harpo loses his voice and can't go on. I'm just going to adjust this here. I keep popping. Three days later, McGinnis produced his second outline. This time... Groucho's luggage is confiscated as he attempts to check out of the Hotel Italia without paying. To escape the situation, he passes himself off as a talent scout for the Metropolitan Opera Company to Mrs. Roanoke Webster, be the Dumont character. Chuk and Harpo are voice coach and valet to the leading man. So that's so then, in further draft, Dumont becomes Mrs. Wharton Phelps, whose late husband made his fortune from inventions, most notably a soundproofing device inspired by his wife's singing. Ah, Nice. Now, by the end of October, McGinnis had finally arrived at some elements that would make their way into the film. Harpo and Chico are impoverished musicians who share an apartment with their friend Baroni, a talented but unknown tenor. A big break is coming soon in the shape of Mrs. Phelps 
and an opera impresario whose name is Guli Guli. At this point, um, at this point, it was felt that maybe they should bring in some people who were familiar with writing for the Marx Brothers. Now, Calmer and Ruby had been brought on to the film to write songs for it. And so it was thought, well, you're writing songs, you might as well have a couple turns at writing uh, a, a couple drafts of the film. So they uh, joined the scripting team. So they and McGinnis produced a script featuring Mrs. Claypool, whose name was first name was Fluffy, <laughs> the bare bones of the contract scene, an opening in which each of the brothers replaces the line in the MGM logo, which was shot but not used in the film. It was used in the trailer for the film. So ah, it has, okay. So it has Groucho and Chico, each of them roaring as the lion, and then Harpo making the horn noise when he opens his mouth. And that was supposed to open the film. In fact, it did open the film originally, but then it was cut and, and off from the beginning of the film at some point. Uh, the Calmer and Ruby draft was then turned over to studio writers Robert Peroche and George Seaton, and then they produced a script that had... And they dropped a bunch of elements from that 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 they'd already, had been introduced. So they produced a, a, a script that was um was basically. So this became it became Groucho is a New York efficiency expert who is visited by the Manhattan Opera Company. Now Harpo and Chico are members of a vagabond opera troupe, with hero Luigi as their leading tenor. Groucho becomes involved with a conniving expertesque performer who has come into a half a million dollars in a divorce. And the intention of this script was to make the old stage story about a show designed to make a profit from failing, but becoming a surprise success, mm. which would later, like, which is yeah, producers, producers, basically. Yeah. Sure. Thalberg vetoed this idea as he wanted comedy scenes built on serious scenes rather than a plot that was funny in itself. So he did not like this idea. So it was back to the earlier drafts. Um, now, Grocha wasn't happy with what he was getting in terms of scripts and treatments. So... It was decided the next step would be to approach George S. Kaufman and Murray Riskin and have them work their magic on on this on the movie. Kaufman did not want to do it. He did not enjoy working for the Marx Brothers, although he liked them very much. He did not enjoy working for them, uh, and he did not like going to Hollywood. He didn't like California at all. And uh, but his wife probably wanted a vacation. And Riskin, who wanted work, said, "George, you got to do it." So uh, they uh, they went there, and their script was. Uh, their script, which contained most of the elements of the film by this time, so it had the contract scene, it had this, did not have the stateroom scene, but it had, um, it had a different ending. It had an ending with the opera house in, in, a, a burning on, a burning and Chico and Harpo helping to, to, uh, um, save the opera house. Oh, okay. Um, but now their script was given to Calmer and Ruby to work on. It was also given to, uh, Robert Parash and, and Seaton to work, George Seaton to work on. Neither knew that the others were working on it. And it just turned out that they were both had offices near each other. And while they're working one day, George Seaton and, and Robert Prush were working one day, they heard other voices talking and they were talking about exactly what they were talking about. <laughs> and they're like, what's going on? So Are then they, they fun of us? so then they like made, they like waited by their door to hear when these people were going to, were leaving. And then when they're leaving, they came out as if just leaving yeah, coincidentally yeah, at the casual. same time. And they meet up with Calmer and Ruby and they're like, we didn't know you guys were working on the same thing we were. And Calmer and we were like, oh yeah, we've been listening to you for weeks. So yeah. Not weeks, probably days. Um, so basically, it was just given. They wanted a little additional polishing yeah. and some work on it, but they didn't want them to be working together. They wanted to see what they could do separately. To yeah, that's something to, that uh, they do in modern sitcoms quite a bit. Is that right? I'll just yeah. I I was working with um oh what's uh, what's uh, David Steinberg. 
Uh, and uh, he was he was telling me that on uh, Mad About You, that was something they would do. They would have two writer's rooms that would work on the same thing at the same time. Then basically they'd have both of them present, yeah. and there'd be a rivalry between the two rooms. Okay. Uh, but then they just pick the best from both of them because, you know, uh, they were competing against each other. They'd work harder, apparently. So uh-huh. that was like the model. I don't know if that was a standard model for sitcoms, but it was one they found worked for them. Uh-huh. I thought that sounded terrible to me. But, yeah, uh, I don't think the show was that, su- that great. That well, it, that it, it was a big from... success. Mad About You ran for a long time. Okay. Yeah. I don't like sitcoms very much, so I... don't ask me my opinion. That's all right. Um, so now, Thalberg's great innovation for A Night of the Opera was this. He decided that what they should do is tour with live shows a selection of material to test it out on audiences, the way the Marx Brothers had developed material for years in vaudeville. Makes sense, all right. So the idea was that they would go on the road. Uh, They had a touring company of 40, um, and of the touring cast, only Ellen Jones actually was in the movie. The rest of the people who were in the touring cast never made it from the stage into the film, which I thought was kind of interesting. Not even Dumont was part of it at this point. Uh, The tour schedule was five shows a day, and they performed in Salt Lake City, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and then they're supposed to do one in Los Angeles, but that was canceled. They did it. They did it, instead. They did a final three uh, three shows in Santa Monica. Did uh, the audience know that this was uh, uh, material that was being developed yes. for something else? Yes, they All were right. told that. They were told, you know, and they would they would do like a, f- a frame framing thing where they would read out elements of the movie to link link the various scenes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So the show was fifty minutes long and featured the restaurant scene, the stateroom scene, the hotel room scene, and opera house scenes, as well as songs by Kalmar and Ruby. I wonder how you do the uh, stateroom scene live. That'd be interesting. Um, well, you did, they did have a set. Oh, I understand so, that. Yeah. So you'd have a uh, sense you, of you the smallness. You would have to not go against that, uh, you know, the fourth wall there, right? Like, I know... But even I, the movie has the fourth wall. Oh, I, underst- I understand yeah. that, but just the illusion, it's a little mm-hmm. more difficult it than the live it, setting. Yeah, yeah. But I think you could, if you use the curtains, if you drew the curtains, you could give a sense of... Yeah. of, of um, so now, just before... Uh, so, sorry. So the, now, I was talking about... So they were using the songs by Calvin and Ruby at this point, but in the end, their songs never made it into the film, and I, it, I don't know why... Uh, there's no official reason why, but I think the reason why is that they were too silly for Thalberg. So they were probably producing songs in a kind of light operetta way sure. that they did for the other movies. And to Thalberg, that wasn't what he wanted. He wanted serious songs that would be appealing yeah. to, to women so that they would be listening to these songs and, and their hearts would be melting. Whereas what Ruby and Kummer were used to doing for the Mars Brothers by this point was producing jokey material yes. that would get across the humor of, of, of the act. Uh, so the music for the film was then provided by uh, Nacio Herb Brown and Arthur Freed, who are most famous for the song Singing in the Rain. And I don't think the songs in this movie are anything to write home about, but uh, Singing in the Rain is a pretty great song. And Arthur Freed would later go on to become the great musical, like the producer of the, the great musical unit at MGM that made the bandwagon and Singing in the Rain and and uh, Easter Parade and on and on. Meet Me in St. Louis, you know, all those yeah. great movies. So just before the tour started, Thalberg also hired the noted comedy writer and script doctor, Al Bosberg, came in, and he did some final rewrites. Uh, at that time, he was like one of the first script doctors in Hollywood, and and he also did a lot of radio work as well. He was basically paid like $1,000 a week to come in and, and make your work better. He's the guy who created Jack Benny's character. Oh, wow. So he okay. took Jack Benny and, and created this character of a skinflint who was reactive rather than him being funny. He wanted things around yeah. Benny to be funny, and then Benny reacted to them, and he felt that that was his strength as a, as a performer. And he also um, basically defined the characters of Burns and Allen, uh, Bob Hope, 
and Wheeler and Woolsey. I've said them in every other show, so I got to get their name in. Yeah, somehow. yeah, sure. No, that's amazing. Um, so his most noted addition to this script was the stateroom scene. Good addition. Uh, now that's, but you know, all of the scenes, you know, the contract scene, all of the scenes started here, and by the time they went through the tour, they were there. You know, so for instance, with the stateroom scene, it was pretty good. But then Chico on stage added the ad lib of and two hard boiled eggs. Yes. And that seemed to turn it because then you had the laugh building. Yeah. You went from a pretty straight scene of ordering food to then everyone piling in and then the comedy end to it. Uh, and instead what that did was kind of make it, make the ordering funny. And so people were already yeah, laughing. You had, you had and three it, different comedy things happening simultaneously. That's right. That's right. That's so the right. audience. I mean, that's an important thing to do, I think, with con- – and this is just my theory. It's like the audience is almost always ahead of you if you, if you start a pattern. Okay. And they're going to be – they're, they're going to either uh, be ahead of you, so they're not going to get the laugh at the end, or you're not going to go there, and then they're going to be disappointed because that's where they wanted it to go. Yeah. So you got to go there, but in a way that you distract them along the way. Mm-hmm. So they're happy when they get there. And yeah. that was that was it. I think the, the rhythm of the honking was, was so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. He also revised the ending of the film, taking out Kaufman and Riskin's original ending, in which the opera host roof catches fire and Chico and Harpo save the day with a stolen fire engine, and replace it with the kind of more madcap yeah. scene in the opera. Incredible itself. acrobatics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Boesberg and Riskin accompanied the tour. Not together. They both spent all their time apart from each other. And I guess that's part of what MGM wanted from the, for the writers was not to have to, to, um, not, you know, not to, be copying each other, but producing something original sure. that could be, you know, put together into something. So, so they were both, they were both timing the sequences. They're both, ti- you know, making sure that so they knew where the last were, how long beats should be before the, the next joke happened. They were looking for audience reactions to jokes. So, you know, there's some jokes that they loved that didn't make it into the movie because the audience didn't laugh at them. There's sure. some jokes they thought were pretty awful, but the audience la- laughed at the, that they had to go in, like the, one about where he says, I'm a plain, cl- plain clothes man. Uh, when the policeman says to Grocho, I'm a plain clothes man. And Grocho says, you look more like an old clothes man. <laughs> like, they thought that joke was yeah. pretty lame. But the audience, every night, laughed their heads off at it. So like, okay, the audience has written it. Yeah. You know? uh, so so that, was, uh, that was happening. Now, the final, the final piece of, I don't want to call it a puzzle, but the final piece of, of this puzzle was the director. So uh, the director, Sam Wood, this completely unnoted director, uh, a man with no style of his own. And not much of a name. And not much of a name. He, I mean, uh, if you're just making up a name, that's about the laziest name you could make up is Sam Wood. <laughs> yes. But he had been a long-time director. He started with Cecil B. DeMille in The Silent Era. That's a good director name, Cecil B. DeMille. Mm-hmm. And then who else we got? Sam Wood. Sam Wood. Oh, Woody. But what's funny with Sam Wood is that he was the director of Hollywood movies. Sure. Same time, a real estate agent. And he made more money oh. as a real estate agent... Than he did as a director. To be fair, he has a real estate agent's name. There you go. Yeah, if you're going to get a house, it's like, yeah. who's the house? Uh, it's from Sam Wood. Sure. I like but, it. And it was going to go see a movie? What is it? A Sam Wood movie. Nah, I'm going to stay in my house. <laughs> he, nice house. He, uh, yeah, he came from a family of, uh, like, had a, like, they were a family of, like, real estate. That's what sure. that they did. So he, he knew, he knew the business. That um, is very strange. Did he ever get out of the real estate business? No, this is what he did his whole so, life. So, uh, sorry, not to jump too far ahead. So the movie comes out, I assume does okay. Yeah. Uh, and people are like, hey, are you the same Sam Wood? He'd, ar- he'd already done, he'd already done big movies. How weird is that? Yeah. Yeah, he did lots of big movies. It's like you're getting your house and like, uh, Tim Burton's the real estate agent. Mm-hmm. And you gotta, should I ask him about Beetlejuice? No, I guess not. <laughs> What's, uh, 
It was Michael Keaton really like, yeah. Yeah, it seems odd so now. Strange. But I mean, in those days, you probably wouldn't know who the director was of movies, unless you were a real movie fan who read the credits. Okay. And you wouldn't know what he looked like. Anyone could be Sam Wood. He wouldn't introduce himself. I'm Sam Wood, the film director. I'm here to sell you a house. It feels like he would use that as a thing. Like, you know, you look like a nice couple. Uh, yeah, we, we are a nice couple. Oh, what you doing later on tonight? Oh, we're going to go see a movie. Oh, speaking of movies, I'm a big movie director. <laughs> I don't know. People didn't really do that then. I almost feel like the reverse would be true, and real estate agents would just be lying and saying it. I did Casablanca. Did you? Yeah. Who, who do you think the director of Casablanca is, if not me? Good point. We'll buy the house. Who was the director of Casablanca? Exactly. Remax. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. A fellow named Max Remax. Century 21. <laughs> that was his name. <laughs> Philip Century 21. He's the 20, 21st descendant. His name was... Wait, sorry. Okay, forget it. Oh, I'm sorry you're bailing on it. No, okay. I was just going to say uh, Century 21 Fox. There you That's go. the studio that he worked for. Oh, uh, nice one. Okay. Okay. Didn't make any sense. So, so the reason... But the that, audience laughed at it, so we're well, keeping we it to, in the Well, we have act. to keep it in, yeah. It's <laughs> tested. It tested well. The reason... That's what I was going to say. The reason Fellberg brought in Wood was because he was malleable, and because he had no style of his own, it was felt that he wouldn't impose a style on the Marx Brothers. Sure. Unfortunately... He had little sympathy for what for the Marx Brothers. He had, and he didn't really have a sense of humor at all. Mm, so, so uh, yeah, Groucho described him as rigid and humorless, uh, as if he was actually wood. He didn't understand their humor or their needs for spontaneity in their in their humor. So he would get upset when they would start to impro- improvise during a during a take. And yeah, he didn't like them departing from the script. He was also frustrated in his attempts to be a director to have control of the pace of the film and things like that, because he would start to say, you should say these lines a little faster, or you should slow this scene down. Ooh. And then the writers would come in and say, oh, no, no, no. Okay, we got to have this go this long. You know, and they'd show like their notes where their stopwatch had told them this has to go like this. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And yeah, and you really couldn't control Mark Groucho's... It's timing. It's his, yeah, it's his timing. Yeah, you, you can't slow be down Groucho's timing, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Imagine a slowed down Chico. Ugh. And I mean, it was, and it was Wood's fault because he was brought on before, before the tour started, but he only went to one show. He went to the Portland show and watched it, and then he just went back home again. He didn't stay, he didn't watch it develop, he didn't see how the audience reacted to changes to and stuff. He didn't have time for this. <laughs> so, so, and also, the worst thing to the Marx <laughs> Brothers was Wood's insistence that every scene be shot 20 times. What? Every sequence had to be shot every time, 20 times. That's ridiculous. Oh, it got worse. When he did Day of the Races, he upped it to 30 times. But uh, so, you know, these guys are in their late 40s. Yeah. They have a really high energy Especially style. Harpo doing so much physical business. Yeah. Harpo spent one whole day hanging in a harness that held him under his arms and between his legs so he could swing on the ship's ropes. After 20 takes all these sh- of, 20 takes of all these different shots, he was bleeding at the crotch and from his underarms. Of course you were. And he, oh, poor guy. He also spent like a whole day like swinging from rope to rope without yeah. a harness or a stuntman. He did, they did all that swinging on his, on his own. He's 47 years old at the time and he's swinging around for hours doing all these takes of these for this nut. And then what Groucho found worst of all was that he would punctuate each take by yelling, sell him a load of clams. To which Groucho finally said, are we in show business or in, or in the fish business? Sell him a load of yeah, clams. That's what he said every time they did a retake. Every time they would do a, a new take. Okay. He also had little idea how to film the musical sequences. I'm kind of he... getting what he means by it, but... <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, he left all the filming of the musical sequences to his assistant director. All right. And then he instituted a $50 fine 
for anyone who was late to the set, which Grosha was fine with because he was an early riser. He was ahead, he was ahead insomnia. Uh, so he was fine with it. He knew that Harpo and Chico were going to be the ones that took the brunt of this. But Harpo, he was the first one who was late because Harpo and Chico came to his house one night and wedged his garage door shut. <laughs> so he couldn't get out of the garage in the morning. And he was late and got had to pay $50. It was after that he didn't think it was so great anymore. But then they started like uh, making it into a bet, like sort of making it into a challenge and, and make, having a lot of fun with it. And that, that was just too much for Wood. So he just finally quit with the whole thing. The film was premiered at Long Beach to stony silence from the audience, uh, much to Thalberg's and the Marxist consternation. Um, yeah, now, why, why, why was that? Nobody knows. Uh, Chico, the, the eternal optimist, was, was saying things like, well, the mayor died today, so everyone's sad. Mm. Or people thought they were going to be playing bingo tonight and said they had to see a movie, so they were not very happy. Groucho was just like, well, this is it. We've done. We're finished in the, in the movie business. This is, a, this is terrible. And Thalberg said, no, no. Let's not panic. Let's, we'll have another premiere and just assume this is a weird yeah. coincidence or a quirk of whatever. And they, so they had, had another premiere for a different audience and it was a huge success. And in fact, the film was a huge success. It was the Marx Brothers most successful film to date. And it was a huge critical and commercial success at the time. I'd be so curious to see what the difference between those two audiences yeah, is. Yeah, it is weird. I think, I think, uh, I mean, again, just from my small experience, you need someone to start the laughter. And like, if someone doesn't, and it goes for too long, yeah, then you never, you never get. The, That's probably you, right. You never get the waves going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to like off the top. So sometimes it's uh, it wouldn't be the worst idea to have a couple of sweeteners in there that will just uh, start laughing and, and get the rhythm going right, and then the crowd will go. Well, Groucho maintained that they cut about fifteen minutes out of the film before the second premiere. Ah, uh-huh. but most of the people say that there were no cuts; that it was okay. just shown as as what as it was. That Thalberg did not want to do any more cuts to it. Interesting. So. Yeah, it's interesting to me too. Even though Thalberg was a let's do let's do re- retakes, and let's, he was known for that. You were saying yes, he had no problem with doing retakes, but he didn't think the film needed retakes. He oh, would only okay. he would only do retakes if he felt there was a problem with the story, and you know that the, the film had a hiccup in its yeah. I'm glad line. they gave it the second the second try. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, okay, yeah. all right. Well, let's talk about the film and the film itself. Okay. All right, let's go with the overall take on it. What uh, what was your overall take on? Uh, well, I didn't give him I, did, I didn't get him. I didn't give him mark last time, and I forgot to give him mark. So I'm gonna we'll talk about duck soup briefly. I, I'm so you give it a mark's mark. I'm gonna give it a mark's mark. I'm gonna give it uh, nine ducks out of ten. And the only reason I'm dropping it a duck is because there was no piano solo or harp solo from Harpo Chico in that movie. In which one? In Duck Soup. If there had oh, been a, okay. a, a harp and piano solo in that film, it would be it would be ten ducks out of ten for me. All right. This movie, I'm going to give uh, eight areas out of ten. Ah, okay. So you prefer Duck Soup to this one? Yes. Okay. That's interesting. All right. Yeah, I find this movie has a lot of boring parts in it to me. This one was by far my favorite. This one made sense, and it was mm. the first one that I thought actually worked as a movie. I thought the other ones were very successful sketch shows uh, with a theme, a loose yeah. theme, yeah. but they didn't work as movies. Mm-hmm. They were just like, you know, it's it's the thing where By the way, I gave it eight. Have, I, I know, know, but okay. this is also one of those weird things where this is this is the, the third time around with this type of podcast yeah. about subjects that you love. Yeah, yeah. So it's always going to be good yeah, yeah. with you. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe it'll go uh, really south over the next couple. I haven't I haven't watched these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, to me, it was like the difference if you go with like a Monty Python, and this was to me their like Life of Brian. Okay, you know, it's like yeah. a movie that's a movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, you also you, it's something like a Holy Grail, which is which is good. Which is my favorite Python. That's great. 
but nothing matters, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Nothing matters. It's all chaos, and it yeah. erupts with chaos, and it ends with chaos. Yeah. And uh, and life of uh, life of Brian uh, starts almost dramatically, mm-hmm. and then it goes to chaos. Yeah. But you still all character based and ends sure. with heart. Yeah. And so I feel that that's uh, you know again you can like whichever one you want the most mm-hmm. and different strokes for different folks. Yeah. But this was the first Marx Brothers movie that I thought was like a movie movie. Yeah. Uh, you know after because I did not like Duck Soup. Uh, I thought that one was just chaos with on uh, nothing and everyone's just like you know uh, falling around on the ice. Um, <laughs> on the cracked some, ice. Yeah, with some good stuff in it, yeah. good scenes, but mm-hmm. good scenes that I would prefer to have seen on their own. Uh, whereas this one, and it was interesting because with Duck Soup. Uh, I missed the Harpo's harping. I missed uh, Chico's piano playing. Oh yeah, that was definitely lacking from that. And point. there wasn't really any musical numbers. You know, there was a couple, but there were oh, yeah. funny yeah, musical yeah. numbers. Yeah. Okay. But there wasn't a good old boring musical number to really yeah. just like slow it all down. Ugh. And that's a strange thing to me because when I when I watched Duck Soup, I went like, oh, I miss it for the pacing. Yeah. It's necessary. Yeah. It's the crust that holds the pie together. Mm. And then in this one, you know, I thought it was probably some of the better. Uh, it's probably the most I enjoyed Chico playing piano. I really liked Harpo's business. Yeah. You know, we'll get it was to, very good. It's we'll probably, it's very, it's very, his best solo, very, very best strong. Solo, yeah. uh, and my gosh, those songs are boring. The songs are dull, really snoozers, like <laughs> painful to watch, but they really help the movie because they give you, mm-hmm. they, 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 they help with the pacing of the film. Sure. So it was like all this, uh, the stuff that I'm normally like, eh, I missed in the last one and uh, made this one work. Yeah, this one was far, far, yeah. far and away my favorite. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but let's go through it. I mean, it's it's a. I mean, I won't argue with you. It's a very well put together movie. Like from beginning to end, it's it's great. My only flaw, I would say, is I think they made Groucho a little too much of a goody goody. Yeah, you know, I would, but that's what they wanted. That's how they changed his character because they they didn't want him to be off putting to the audience. Yeah. So before he was the character who negated the the situations, he would come in. You know, I mean, you still get a little bit of it. The restaurant scene, he's a complete jerk to, to Margaret yeah. Dumont. And that's his character, and that's what his character should be. But yeah, in this movie where he's delivering love letters and, and very concerned about, you know, it just feels like, well, that's not Groucho. He doesn't, doesn't care about that garbage. It uh, it worked for me because then it could take a turn mm. uh, afterwards. You yeah. know, uh, yeah. to, to again, if I'm making a comparison, it would be you have the old Looney Tunes cartoons where it's Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. And they're yeah. just all woo 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 and just jumping around I love nonsense. Those ones. I love yeah, those ones. from the from the get go, uh, nothing, you know. And then you've got the, of course, you know, this means war, Bugs Bunny, yeah. where he's just trying to live his life, <laughs> uh, but he's still very yeah. very funny. And the uh, suburban, you like the suburban Bugs Bunny. There's something, uh, there's something about, yeah. It's a little, uh, you, know that. you don't want that. You don't want that crazy zany. Who cares about this stupid rabbit who's just, the, <laughs> you know, leave him, leave him alone. He's just trying to live his life. Uh, okay, so starting off with. Uh, well, let me just, just let me just say, I think my, you know, like I really like yeah. Night of the Opera a lot. Like, I think it's a really good movie. I just like Duck Soup a little bit more. I like it one more, but uh, I think it's just my. I think because I I know what's a coming, and I can see I can see. The signs of it in this movie, maybe that's what kind of makes it a little bit, you know, so I, I'm like, this movie has everything right in it. It does everything right it should do with the Marx Brothers. So, you know, but at the same time, it starts to create problems for itself in that it makes Groucho a little bit too much of a goody two-shoes. Even though he's stiffing people it on changes, bills, It changes still... Harpo's character. He's no longer he's no longer an imp of the perverse. He is, he is a valet, a valet to someone who 
And he doesn't have a lot of business in the movie either until you have him like swinging on the rope and stuff like that at the, uh, on the ship and at the end. But he doesn't do, he doesn't like, like in the scene where uh, he and Chico give each other the, the salamis yeah. and he cuts his with an axe. It doesn't take the axe out of his coat and cut it. He, it's laying on a, it's laying on a barrel. In the past, it would have been something that was on him that he would bring out and, and slice, right. you know, like the scene in the, the speakeasy in Horse Feathers where the guy says, cut the deck. And then he takes an axe out of his coat and cuts the deck. Right. And then leaves it there. Just walks away from the axe. He doesn't even put it back in his coat. Um, this movie it has to be practical, you know? And so it starts to kind of change his character in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when you come to comedy, it is good to try something new. Mm-hmm. Now, what film are we up to now? Five or this six? Is number six. Yeah. Number six. This is the sixth time most of the audience members have seen the Marx Brothers. Yeah. And they've seen Harpo be that. Yeah. You know, ch- chasing the girls. They've seen Groucho doing that. They've seen it all. Yeah. So, like, okay, can that same thing be funny a sixth time? Yeah. And rarely is that the case, mm-hmm. that you can do the same. You know, that's why all these comedians, you know, you get like a Jim Carrey and go like, hey, that's great, that Ace Ventura, that's pretty good. Uh, now you got the mask. Well, that's kind of similar, but uh, fair enough. Yeah. Now we got another Ace Ventura. Yeah, we sure do. What else you got? <laughs> uh, one more of those crazy things. Yeah. Yeah, we're uh, we're good. Yeah. I think we're full. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. As much as we enjoy it. Sure. There you go. Um, but he also recognized that and changed the, the arc of his career. Yeah. Most yeah. people do. Yes. Most most comedians realize it's time to now shift a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Or you're the same thing for, for mm-hmm. forever. And some people can do that. Jack Benny played the same character for, you know, uh, most most of his life mm-hmm. successfully. But once again, you know, his character wasn't... Wasn't it an acting character? It was a reactive character. True. So you could change the cast around him and give him new things to bounce off. The same of. thing with the Bob Hope. Is Bob yeah. Hope would just like be with whatever was the new star starlet yeah. of the day yeah. and just react to it like ah you kids today and mm-hmm. then he'd flirt with a girl and it would all be fine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, sure. All right. We've finally gotten to the beginning and we're only seventeen hours into the podcast. <laughs> Go ahead. The film opens with Mrs. Claypool. Of course, played by the great Margaret Dumont. Right. I will say one of my other problems with the film was Margaret Dumont has had enough of Groucho. Mm. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't buy that. She's always got to be a little bit attracted mm-hmm. to Groucho. Mm-hmm. She puts up with his nonsense and I think that's that's her strength as a straight person yeah. that all the other straight people don't have. So I thought I thought when she was like just like brushing him off later and not wanting to go to his cabin, I was like, mm, no, that doesn't that doesn't work for me. Yeah. As yeah. Well. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're in a dining hall. We're in a restaurant. Restaurant. <laughs> dining hall. Yeah, dining area. We're in a, That's where you dine. We're in a small country inn. Uh, we have played by. Uh, so wait, she's waiting impatiently for her dinner guest, her right. dinner companion. She asks. Uh, she asks the waiter that her missing guest, one Otis B. Driftwood, be paged. And you do like this name? I do like this name. Yeah, I think it's a good name. Uh, the waiter begins to page Otis B. Driftwood, and we discover Driftwood, our Groucho's character. Sitting at a table directly behind Mrs. Claypool. Really good reveal. It is a good reveal because you don't realize it's him. Yep. Uh, with a younger blonde woman. Again, like this in the last film, as much as it was very spectacular, yeah. the whole thing of, he's coming! Yeah, and yeah. he's the grandest man! <laughs> you know, it's not gonna, he's not gonna show up. Yeah, yeah. But this one, you don't know how he's gonna be. Yeah, and then, yeah. Yeah, it's a good turn. It's good. So, uh, Driftwood is shocked that the meal is $9 and recommends the woman not pay it. Not pay the bill. And then he joins Mrs. Claypool at her table for another meal. So we get his character right away, that he obviously is skinflint, yep. a cheap, but also uh, a uh, opportunist, yep. a rank opportunist. A charmer. 
somewhat of a charmer. Yeah, he's he's flirting with girls through the whole thing. Yes, okay. much more than uh, whereas that would be like you know, uh, I mean, a more aggressive uh, Harpo and and and, and yeah, you know, yeah. things. But yeah, whenever there's a pretty girl, he'll just like quietly just like lean in and just be talking to them and do a little bit of business till it's time for him to talk again. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, we learn that Mrs. Claypool has hired Driftwood as her personal manager to get her into society, but after three months and paying him a lot of money, nothing has been done. Driftwood flirts with her in a peculiar way. And pointing to another man dining in the restaurant, uh, tells her, first warns her that he doesn't want her flirting with this guy, but then tells her that this is Herman Gottlieb, director of the New York Opera Company, and it's through him and her investment of $20,000 that Mrs. Claypool will become accepted into high society by becoming a patron of the arts. Mm. And Gottlieb is played by uh, the actor Sig Ruman, or Siegfried Ruman. He changed his name to Sig Ruman probably during the war to have his name less German sounding. Okay. Uh, but he was a German actor who was a friend of George S. Kaufman and had a lot of success on Broadway. And then he moved into movies uh, when it became talkies, actually, which is interesting. Uh, he worked with Lubitsch in Anochka and the Jack Benny film To Be or Not To Be. And then he also worked with Billy, uh, I always say Billy Wilder. I know it's probably Billy Wilder because he was German, but let's just call him Billy Wilder. Yeah, I don't think anyone it's calls a great him Billy Wilder. It's a great name. Billy Wilder and... We've already had complaints about the Chico Chico thing. We're not going to get into <laughs> He was in The Emperor Waltz, uh, Solag 17, and The Fortune Cookie. So a lot of good oh, movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah good, good career. Plus, he did a lot of TV and stuff like that. He's one of those actors that you'd go, oh, that guy. Probably, he was probably like in Gilligan's Island or something. Um, he also appeared in three Marx Brothers films. Which films? We'll talk about as they come to them. Uh, so she is introduced to Gottlieb by Driftwood, uh, who makes it clear to Gottlieb that he has first dibs on Claypool's Millions. And Gottlieb explains that her money will enable him to sign the celebrated tenor, Rudolf Laspari, who is played by Walter Wolf King. Was uh, this where Groucho uh, just lying about the $8 million? Where's the line about the $8 million? You know, uh, I fell in love with her, you know, before I knew she had $9 million. Yeah. When I was, she yeah. only had $8 million. But it didn't change my opinion. Yeah. That was, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, Walter Wolf King uh, was the singer, came to Hollywood via Broadway, like a lot of actors, and uh, basically did a couple movies like as a leading man. He's even like in a Laurel and Hardy movie called Swiss Miss, but mostly he played like kind of a suave villain, uh, kind of a Laspari character, although Laspari is much more brutal than I think most of his roles would have been. Uh, now, we leave the restaurant and cut to the opera house where we find Tommaso, Harpo, fooling around, dressed as Pagliacci the clown, his employer enters and is okay, after after he's doing the thing where it looks like he's gonna sing. There's a spray oh, in the mouth. Right, yeah, yeah. Nothing. Spray in the <laughs> mouth. Nothing. Good business. A good intro for Harpo. The employer enters and is outraged to find Tommaso his dresser in his costume. Yep. So Tommaso re- removes the costume, revealing a naval uniform for Madame Butterfly. Uh which he then takes off and then uh he reveals a peasant girl costume from some other uh, opera and then Lasparri is so angry he starts whipping Tommaso. Which is it's brutal, but it really gets that character yeah. immediately where you want that you character. You can do that in the very beginning of a movie yeah. like this. It yeah. changes the tone a little bit. Yeah. But like because that's kind of Harpo's character is so uh, over the top. Yeah. Yes. And Harpo doesn't and Harpo downplays the the whipping too. He doesn't over he doesn't really no, no. ham it up the pain and stuff cry like that. Or anything, yeah. yeah. And so that makes it it doesn't totally turn your stomach or whatever. It doesn't make you queasy. You're just going, "Oh, you know, he's using this opera. No, we got it. He's the villain. It's a prop, and he's and, hitting and, with and it. And the nice thing, again, going back to Bugs Bunny, mm-hmm. uh, someone will do something and blow up Bugs Bunny's house, and then yes. it's, yes. you know, whatever whatever happens now uh, is perfect comeuppance for the rest of the movie. Bugs Bunny could do anything. And that's the same thing with this guy. Once he whips Harpo, 
well, we're fine. Yeah. Like, yeah. do whatever can, you want. Whatever you want to it, this it, guy, yeah. It's the equivalent nowadays of a, if a villain kicks a dog sure. in the beginning of a movie. Mm-hmm. Well. What if they shoot a dog? Well, then we've got, uh, then they can shoot up all of uh, <laughs> uh, Europe if you want. <laughs> Knock yourself out. But yeah. Uh, so we've set that tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he throws uh, Tommaso out of his dressing room mm-hmm. where he is found by uh, Rosa Castaldi, uh, who comforts him. And Rosa Castaldi is played by Kitty Carlisle, who didn't act in a lot of movies, actually, but she was a Broadway actress. And a game show contestant. And a game show host. Or not really. Was she a contestant? I guess she was a contestant. Yeah, wasn't because she? that's how they did it. That's a weird thing. Were the people who were on the show a contestant? Um, here's how it goes. Were the guests the contestants and they were like the panel? Those yes. Those were panel shows. They were panel shows. So yes and no. You're correct. If someone went on to tell the truth or, yeah. or, or, or uh, what's my line, yeah. uh, what would happen is they would guess. And if they didn't guess, uh, they would then get like $5 or $10. So I'm going to turn over all the cards and yeah. it's $50. So you get the $50 because you fooled our panel. Yeah. And now, Kitty Carlisle, take off your blindfold and you'll see this is actually a donkey in a man suit <laughs> or whatever. And she'd be, all right, I believe it. And Ben Surf would do a joke and they'd all have a good time. But that's uh, that tradition of like, uh, contestants, yeah. uh, that, that continue to like, uh, uh, whose line is it anyway today? We had on our other podcast, Colin Mockery as a, as a, as a guest. Yeah. Uh, he, he was always a contestant on that show. They, they, they did them as game shows. Okay. So officially, he was never a host of the show or an actor on the show. Yeah. He was always a contestant on the show. Oh. Yeah. That way they didn't have to pay them as much. Dave, mm-hmm. you're not wrong. <laughs> it did get around, uh, uh, actors' royalty rights. You're, yeah. you're absolutely correct. Wow. Um, Interestingly, she was also did some also appeared on Match Game, Kitty Carlisle. The original Match Game, yeah. Okay, yeah. and then uh, it did. What's my line as well? Uh, she what's also, my line? She's most famous for. Yeah, not to tell the truth. Oh, <clears throat> she was on there for like twenty years. Yeah, okay. Um, she also appeared in Woody Allen's Radio Days. She was uh, the Maxwell House radio jingle singer. Oh, nice one. For okay, the, on, in the radio show. So last part, he comes out of his dressing room, probably to further uh, beat up Harpo. But then he sees Rosa there, so then he has to hide the fact that he's a brute. And uh, he acts all sweetness and light, luring Tommaso back into the dressing room, where then we hear the beatings renewed inside. You can right. hear the smashing Which, again, is a good one because it then shows you that uh, he's a big liar as yes, well. Yes, So it's liar. like, don't believe anything he says. And then also the cleverness of having something violent happening off screen, yes. which lessens its impact. So you still don't like the guy, but you're not... You're not, re- you're not watching. You're not, you're not disturbed by it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so Lesperi is romantically interested in Rosa, but she has no interest in him. Her heart belongs to Ricardo Baroni who has a small role in the opera. Um, Ricardo is played by Alan Jones, who was very popular with the Marx Brothers, actually. Basically, they felt like he was the, their new Zeppo. And, uh, That's exactly how he came across. Yeah, yeah. Except he had stuff to do. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, it bothered me a little bit when I saw that, because I was like, oh, if you'd given Zeppo this kind of business, yeah, yeah. maybe it'd still be around. Um, interesting, like, uh, Alan Jones, he started in Broadway. He was a singer in Broadway. And then uh, he was supposed to uh, team up with Jeanette MacDonald in her first film, Naughty Marietta. Uh, but he had issues getting out of a contract with the Schuberts, and so the role went to Nelson Eddy instead, and that became mm. the, the famous duo. And he later was in a movie with them uh, called Rosemary, but um, Nelson Eddy was so jealous of, of Ellen Jones in the film that he had his scenes cut out of it. So, uh, But he had a long, long career as a singer, and uh, he actually was the father of uh, Jack Jones. I don't know if you know that singer. No. He's a pop and jazz singer from the 60s. He did... Um, the Burt Bacharach song, uh, Husbands and Wives. He had a lot of songs. Okay. And he later played, interestingly, later played the voice of Greg's Frog in the animated uh, cartoon Over the Wall. You ever see that cartoon? No. Oh, it's a very good cartoon. Okay. Very good. It was like a limited, oops, just like 12 episode cartoon. Yeah. 
super good. I uh, highly it from? like 2012, something like that. 2000. Really? Okay. Maybe a little, yeah, around that time. Like in the 2000s, like in the, the, the teens of, of this. You don't mean over the hedge, do you? Over the garden wall. Oh, over the garden wall. Okay. Did I say it wrong by the first? Sorry. No, you said over the wall. Oh, sorry, over the garden wall. Yeah, sorry, over the garden wall. All right. Where the two two brothers and they go out into the explore the. You never seen that movie? Nope. Or that TV show? Oh, it's nope. very good. Okay. And I recommend it to you, dear listener. All right. So then, uh, Fiorello comes into the opera house. This is Chico, the Chico's character, uh, to collect his mail. He doesn't seem to work there. No, but, but he doesn't live anywhere, so he's got to get his mail from somewhere. Yeah, but he seems to know everyone, and everyone yep. knows him. Uh, he meets Tommaso, and they exchange identical gifts, identical gifts of salami, which is what I said before. Do? It's Italy. Yes, salami is everywhere. Uh, they're in Milan, so they're giving each other Genoa salami. Uh, and then Tommaso cuts his with a handy axe, as I, as we said, talked about earlier. The opera begins, and Fiorello greets Ricardo, who is standing in the wings. We learn that they went to music school together, but neither has found success yet. Fiorello considers Ricardo a better singer than Laspari and offers to become his agent. Ricardo would like to marry Rosa, but not until he has become a success. Yes, and now we have the plot. Everything's established. Done. It's all, it's all busy work. It's fine. It's good. Go getting it, getting it yeah. done. Good. Yep. Dr- Driftwood arrives at the opera house by horse and carriage and is outraged to discover that the opera is still in progress. <laughs> he demands that the driver take him once more around the park and more slowly this time. This was a joke that came in from uh, Kelmer and Ruby. Uh, so then um, in the opera house, the opera has ended. Gottlieb and Mrs. Claypool are joined by Driftwood, apparently eager for the start of, <laughs> yes. the, of the opera. Mrs. Claypool informs him with great disgust that the opera has ended. And I see what you mean. In this scene, she seems to not like him. Yeah. And it's cert- it does- doesn't feel quite right. Like, she should be more sympathetic to him. She always bounces out with, like, annoyed, but then immediately snaps back yeah. to yeah. she's okay and-, and falls for his flirting or yeah. whatnot. Yeah. And it feels like she's coming under the under the influence of Gottlieb, who maybe, because, is, a, maybe is a hypnotist. Which is, oh, okay, yeah. Um, so... By the way, let's just say, Groucho does some of the best entrances into scenes in this. Okay, like, he just instance, comes in well to scenes. Yeah. Well, he's got that great walk. He's anyway. got a great walk, and he's always yeah. had a good walk. Yeah. But he, like, just, like, whoosh into a scene. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. a, just a punctuation, just mm-hmm. snap. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if that was reinforced on the road when they were touring. As I would not be surprised. That that, that, that got a laugh. Just the way he walked in yes. got a laugh. Absolutely. And to come like, in more quickly. There's even scenes the later laugh. where he just walks in, delivers a line, and like walks out, and it's just, <laughs> it wouldn't work without the, uh, without the walk. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Mrs. Uh, so, we then learn that, uh, that Gottlieb has plans to sign Lespari to a contract to bring him to, New- to bring him to New York, to New York to sing with the company for ten, uh, for a thousand dollars a night. Is it, wait, isn't it ten thousand dollars a night? Ten thousand dollars a night? I think so seems, because seems like later they uh, they do a whole bunch of math on that and uh, and break it down, break it down, break it down. I believe it's ten. Okay, maybe I maybe I missed a zero when I was reading typing this. Sorry. Uh, Driftwood wonders how he can get a cut of this action. Mm-hmm. Backstage after the opera, Laspari is surrounded by admirers, and he is inter- but he's interrupted by Tommaso bearing a card on a silver platter. And he's so annoyed, which he should do. That's oh, his no, job. It's the right thing as a to dresser, do. as a valet. And he's annoyed. He's annoyed yeah. by him just because he's a jerk. Yeah. yeah, but and this is from Gottlieb. Laspari wants. Rosa to join him for dinner with Gottlieb, strongly hinting that if she plays her card rights, she could be his leading lady. Rosa tells him that she already has plans with Ricardo. Tommaso, or sorry, Laspari takes out his anger on Tommaso, but is stopped by Driftwood, which is a good scene. That's a good scene of sympathy for Driftwood to me. I would, I prefer this Driftwood sympathy than the kind of uh, trying to get couples together Driftwood. Yeah. Driftwood. Um, so then 
Laspari is ready to now attack Driftwood for in, for daring to, to interrupt him. Right. But he's then pulling he is, the uh, he's pulling the uh, the buttons off the fluffy buttons off of his uh, outfit. Like, uh, do you was it? Can you sleep on those things? Yeah. 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 And then uh, just as he looks like he's going to about to hit uh, Driftwood, he is knocked unconscious by Tommaso. Tommaso seems contrite. I love the scene where uh, oh, it's one of my favorite lines. just like, oh, you're sorry, are you? It's yeah, it shows a good spirit. It shows a good spirit. <laughs> and then just hits him on the head one more time. So he, like, uh, he, he uh, revives him with some uh, with smelling salts. So smelling salts, and then knocks him unconscious again. Yeah, that's just beautiful timing. It's, and on it's that. an unusual scene because we don't often see Groucho and Harpo working like, in a scene together like this. Where it's sympathetic, and, and, and he's not just like, uh, that's the grisliest sight I've ever seen or whatever, you know, like, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, but it, it really does work, because you need uh, it to seem like a tender, oh, he's full of regret. Yeah, for, yeah, for, yeah. For, for kaboom to the second, <laughs> he's just hitting the guy over the head over yeah, and over again. Yeah. It's It really is brutal, and well-deserved. Yeah. Um, so, uh, now Fiorelli and Driftwood meet at the feet of the unconscious Laspari. Who they use is like a bar rail. Yeah, I, do, I like that uh, a lot. Thing, two drinks, two drinks. Yeah. Oh, and man, do I love this line? Are you going to say the line? No, that you, you can like? say it. Sure. Oh, I love this line, and uh, I'm just paraphrasing wrong. But just like it was something about like uh, how how the country is doing, and uh, Chico goes, I don't know, I'm not from around here, and like the Italian guy for the whole thing, he's yeah, like, yeah. No, yeah. I'm not from around here. Well, there. Okay, let's talk about this now. I was going to talk about it later, but okay. we'll talk about it now. When I was watching this movie, I realized as I was watching it that I had no idea where they were. Because mm. there's never any markers in the film for where they are. Really? It doesn't say they're in Italy? It, doesn't, it never says they're in Italy. Because what happened was... I guess I just assumed it with the in opera. The, in the 1940s, the movie was reissued into theaters. And because the we were at war with Italy, which was one of the Axis powers and, and an ally of the, of the Nazis, all references to Italy were ah. cut out of the movie. There was an opening scene to the film where it's a, a crowded street scene in Milan... And the crowd starts singing the chorus of Pagliacci, and it goes from person to person. And they're singing it until it comes to the waiter in the restaurant who sing, sings it until he stops to, to ask to uh, talk to um, Mrs. Claypool. Mm. And you can hear, if you w- watch the movie, you can hear a, th- a thump as it goes into his line. Oh, and it's actually missing the first line of the sentence because he interrupts himself singing to, to say that. But they had cut that scene out because it shows Italy. Uh, and so that scene is missing from the film. Okay, they cut out they cut out scenes that show the outside of the opera house yeah. being situated in, in Italy. They cut out any mention. So in that scene, he goes, "I'm not from I'm not from uh, I'm not from around here. Not from around here." He says, uh, "No, but, but my mother and father were Italian." Was his next line, but that was cut out of the movie because oh. it says that his mother and father were Italian. Oh, I don't like that. I like. I mean, again, I'm glad that was cut out. Okay, it's funnier. Just like, sure. hey, what's the matter? You, how you doing? Hey, yeah, what's yeah. going? It's like, uh, oh, you, you, Italy's pretty great. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not from uh, here. Yeah, yeah. I'm not from yeah. Italy. Yeah. I'm not from around here. Yeah, but, but the reason I've been I, an Italian stereotype for I six like, movies. Yeah. I'm in Italy, and I'm like, I'm not from here. But I do like that he speaks an Italian accent, but he's not Italian. Yes. But his mom and dad were Italian, so I don't know. Maybe oh, they, maybe you don't need that. Okay, you can you can get around to it. That maybe way, maybe you don't need Seems that. I think a cleaner joke. Yeah, yeah. I like. I think you're right there. But those are the reasons. So when you watch the film, like there's never, like that's why the movie has a kind of, like when you when they're sailing to to New York, you're like, well, where are they sailing from? It never establishes where they are. Mm. You know, you know, it's an opera. Everyone has Italian names, so you're like, I guess it's Italy, but it never actually ever says. Oh. They even like cuts on Gottlieb's card because they, they didn't want to reveal that they weren't in New York. Interesting. Okay. They want to make it feel, but then it doesn't explain the ocean voyage. So it's very, it's a very bad, badly done thing, but. And something that Thalberg never would have done, but by that point Thalberg was dead, so you could just do whatever you wanted to his oh, movies. Okay. But yeah, I think it's interesting. So 
And you just love, you love Groucho and Chico having a conversation. Yeah. Like that was just, that's just good rhythm. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Yes. It is great. Um, so yeah, so we get, uh, so we get, yeah, Friali, Fiorello claiming to represent the greatest tenor in the world. Right. And gets rather cagey when, uh, when Driftwood, you know, asks, oh, Laspari? Sure. You know, he doesn't really say no or whatever. He just... Yeah. What's, what's his name? Oh, who can remember their names? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Driftwood assumes, that he means Laspari, and so a contract is produced, and then we get the great. I think it's a great scene, the contract scene where mm-hmm. we have them uh, tearing, disagreeing on the fir- party of the first part. Oh, and so good! It's very good. It's very good, and then it ends on a good joke as well, with the finer ca- capper being, "What is this ending? Uh, or you know, what is this last? Well, that's in all all uh, contracts. It's the sanity clause. You know, don't you know? You can't kid me. There's no no such thing Santa as a Santa Claus. Yeah, it's a great punchline. Yeah, it is a very good punchline. I think something about this movie too is it was really well lit and really well shot, and yes. with yes. a minimum of uh, of cuts, mm-hmm. which was one of, one of my problems with the last two films a little bit. Where yeah. like it'll just get, kill the rhythm, but mm-hmm. like yeah, where they're tearing stuff. If they keep cutting, yeah. if they cut to a close up of Groucho, yeah. and then to Chico, no, you yeah. got to like. One shot, yeah, solid. No, you don't need that. Tear, 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 sure. tear, 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 yeah. tear. Yeah. Till nothing. It has to be one shot. And yeah. yeah. It's basically like they should have, they, you know, maybe Falberg made the director go back and watch Animal Crackers or Monkey Business and say, this is how I want you to do it. Just two shot, lock yeah. off the camera, let them do their thing because this is tr- how they're best. It's tricky for a director sometimes because they, they want to add their own yeah, fingerprints that's right. to it. They yeah. want to be part of it. They want to be creative. And they want to do what would work in drama, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily what works in comedy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so then Gottlieb arrives to find the Days Laspari. Driftwood learns that he has, well, he hasn't signed, but he almost signed, uh, the wrong, <laughs> the wrong tenor. Um, and then Gottlieb beats him to the punch by signing Laspari. Um, and then he gets the sandbag on the head. Is that, uh, yes. Yeah. That's a capper there. Yeah. Cause you need the comedy of threes and boom. There we go. Uh, cut to dockside. They have a large ocean liner, uh, is loading at the pier and We're the pier's back full of passengers. On a ship. And, uh, Much like in uh, in uh, monkey business, sure, yeah, sure. The, the 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 Marx Brothers work on a, a ship. This is good. <laughs> this is good. Um, Find Ro- space, bunch of snobs. It all works. There you go again. Yeah, Rosa introduces uh, Ricardo to Gottlieb, who is uninterested in Ricardo. Uh, fans ask Lasparri to sing for them, but he refuses. In a side to to Gottlieb, saying, "Why should I sing if I'm not being paid? What a heel!" And then uh, a kinder Rosa agrees to sing. Though, and she begins to sing alone, the, the kind of signature song of the movie, at the ship's rail before being joined by Ricardo, who is standing at the quayside. Um, Gottlieb is impressed by Ricardo singing, but still will not consider him until he has established a reputation for himself. We cut to Groucho riding on the top of his trunk while being pushed through the passageway by the porter. Yeah, that's I lo- great. I love the sequence. Yes, it's yeah, really good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, he stops off at Rosa's room to deliver a, a love note from Ricardo to Rosa. Now, I know you're saying you don't care for that, but here's why that one works for me. Okay. Is it feels like, um, like these, these guys are the, star, are not star-crossed lovers, but they're the lovers that can't be together. Yeah. This is to me very Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of the clown, yeah. uh, showing up and giving them a little assistance while yeah. being a wisecracker about it, that feels like the device that we're playing there. It'd sure. be creepy if Groucho was coming onto her. Yeah, yeah. We don't want that. No. So this is a this is an okay role to me for for him. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more biting would be good. Sure. But uh, but what he's doing works for me. Yeah. But see, unlike in say Mark a Monkey Business, the Marx Brothers aren't the star of their own film here. They are they are servants to the romantic plot, mm-hmm. and they are they are helping that plot to resolve through the entire film. They're helping That's that plot correct. to resolve, yes. which I don't. Which I mean, it work, I mean it's. 
it works in the film, but I, f- I, I don't know. It just, it's a change in their characters. Uh, but as you said, their characters may have needed to be changed after five movies of mayhem. Uh, he next stop, stops off at Mrs. Claypool's cabin, yes. where he lays on her bed and makes with a nuisance shoes, of himself yeah. with his shoes on. And he's reading, uh, what book was he reading? Do you remember? Uh, I don't, did it have a name? I guess it did, but I can't remember what yeah, it was. Yeah, I just assumed there was some sort of joke with that. Uh, yeah, may, maybe at the time it was Once all the again, rage. Uh, back when you know, the, the deviant thing you could do was lie on a bed and read a book. Yes. Look at that guy. What a lazy oh. bum. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh, Get him out of the room, that creep. Yeah, I did that so much as a teenager, but I'm unable to do that now. Uh, get on a bed with the, uh, wearing shoes. No, that's no, the thing I would that bothers me the most is the shoes. Yeah, I would never do that. No, I mean lay in a bed and just read. Mm. I can't do that anymore. If I do that, I, I just start thinking, oh, I haven't done the laundry. I really need to go and do da da da. da. Oh, it's really. That's what I you see. yell at your children to do. Yeah, I guess I should learn to yell at my children more. Um, then. Yeah, and I don't know how she feels about him at this point, too. Yeah. Once again, it it would be good if she was a little flirty with him, a little back and forth. Mm -hmm, But yeah, she mm -hmm. seems just one note annoyed with him. Yeah, she's just uh, she's just affronted by his improper behavior. Now, quick question: Does she sing at all in this? No. Isn't that weird? She doesn't usually sing in the movies. It just feels like you know someone who you know is there with an opera like like the the last movie ended with her singing and then throwing fruit at her. You know, it felt it feels like with this, like, oh, she should at one point try to sing and then everyone reacts. You know, it feels like that's 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 a beat you play with a Margaret Dumont. But no, none of yeah, that. it was a little bit in the that one plot where the her husband invented a soundproofing device because yeah. of her singing. Yeah. But it doesn't really come off in, in this one. Um, so after he uh, after he gets her upset at him, he then convinces her to c- come visit him at his cabin in 10 minutes. In 10 he'll minutes. be back in 11. Uh, he, uh, then gets, once again, pushed off down the uh, passageway by the porter. And then he discovers the cabin that has been booked for him by Gottlieb, which is sli- slightly smaller than the steamer trunk that he has brought on the, the voyage. Uh, he also, uh, discovers upon opening the trunk that he has brought on three stowaways. Tommaso, uh, well, not Tommaso yet. We see, we meet Ricardo yeah. and, uh, Fiorello, uh, who is, um, wearing his, wearing his shirt. Yeah. Possibly wearing a shirt. He found it in the in the trunk, but it's not for sure that That's it's... right. And he sold uh, sold the suit to make room, yeah. which was what uh, was a dollar dollar forty dollar forty. He says that's my suit, all right. Yeah, I like how Harpo looks at us when he says that too. He looks right <laughs> into the camera and says that line. Uh, Groucho. Sorry, Groucho. Yeah, Groucho. Sorry, Groucho. Um, cause I'm thinking about the fact that he opens a drawer and finds Harpo. Oh, it's adorable. Laying in the drawer, sleeping, and he's sleeping off his insomnia, which is uh, important to note. And that Harpo does nothing but sleep through this whole sequence, which is great. Except for his horn, uh, his, his sleep, his sleep ordering by right. horn. Um, so now, expecting Mrs. Claypool any moment, Driftwood is eager for, to get rid of these, uh, guys, but, uh, Fiorello has that really stubborn streak that he'll sometimes show in, in a movie, uh, as Chico's character does just get really stubborn and pig-headed in this moment, and he refuses to leave unless they get some food. So Driftwood agrees to order food from them. He goes out into the hallway because he doesn't want, anyone to know that they're on the ship of yeah. course so he goes into the hallway and orders the steward oh stew uh the steward comes and then we get the, the great sequence where he's ordering the food and then chico who's supposed to be silent supposed to be quiet and he agrees that he's going to be quiet uh ordering um two hard-boiled eggs, two hard-boiled eggs. Honk. <laughs> three hard-boiled eggs <laughs> make that three hard-boiled eggs um yes it's very good then we have the famous stateroom scene which is brilliant it's a brilliant scene yes it is it's, it's just a masterpiece great. of timing yeah of build, 
there is only one thing wrong with it. Which is? Which is that they do uh, the overcranking at the end and have oh, them for the people pouring out of the too fast. Yeah, you don't need it. Yeah. Just to open it up and have people fall out, and it would be sure. absolutely perfect. But sure. like it, it's just a little bit that little beat of it's too it's jarring that they're all falling out. Yeah, and know? that was probably the director's choice because it would have happened on, on the tour, and it would have That's been right. agreed to as part of how the tour happened. And it was great because you, we've set up the ticking clock of. Margaret Dumont is going to show up here in ten minutes. That's right. So and you, but but they do enough to. Distra- it's one once again. It's the beautiful thing, of like you know she's going to show up, so she's going to run into uh, Chico, the other guy, and Harpo. Well, that's enough. That's yeah. just what's what's going to be. Sure. And but then they do enough distraction with the, uh, its own thing, which is great. That when she shows up, you're like, of course that she's showing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then her having everyone fall on her. Yeah. That's the that's the bit. That's yeah. how you do it. Yeah. It's you a, bring those two uh, cows home at the same time. Yeah. It's a uh, good capper. It's it's how you do comedy. That's just that's just a perfectly written timed <laughs> bit. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, so that night at dinner, the captain honors three famous aviators. So we're not quite sure <laughs> why he does, but we, yeah. this has a this has a meaning. With the beards. Yes. With the very who, cartoon. Who have equally famous beards for sure. Yes. yes. Uh, and that means that they're foreign, those giant beards, sure. by the way. Uh, Gottlieb and Driftwood vie for the affections of Mrs. Claypool, who warns Driftwood that she doesn't like to see him with the characters who have been hanging around the opera house. Driftwood makes several ironical comments, knowing that those very characters are hiding in his cabin. He also comforts Rosa, uh, knowing that knowing that she is missing Ricardo. He kind of hints to her that he is not as far away as she thinks he is. Uh, Fiorello, Ricardo, and Tommaso decide to take their chances and go out on deck to find some food. Uh, they stumble upon an enormous banquet on deck hosted oh, by great the them. Italian passengers on, yeah. the, on the ship. Seeing them loading up the food. Yeah, that is really good. So they're so happy. They're You're just so happy for them that they get their food. <laughs> That's so happy. And you just love their surprise. Like, just the amazement of Harpo as he walks along, just with this wide-eyed, like, what is happening? I'm I know. getting and, all this food given to, to me. And then the next scene where they're just, like, sopping up the gravy mm-hmm. with the bread. And yeah. We're all rubbing their plates. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's perfect. Yeah. You finally see them all get well-fed. Yeah. It's just nice. And then we have a fun sequence where uh, Ricardo is is uh, asked to sing by the, his friends, and he sings uh, "Cosi Cosa" while uh, everyone dances in their Italian costumes. So you get a lot of uh, that sort of thing going on. And the the band leader, uh, played by Billy Gilbert, who is in a lot of movies, uh, did often played the heavy in films, but he's also famous for his sneeze. He was famous for his. But he actually played Sneezy in the uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh, okay. As soon as that character was written, Walt Disney's like, I know who I have to get to play this part. And he also played Willie the Giant in uh, in the Jack and the Beanstalk for Walt Disney as well. Oh, nice one. And also that movie had a sneezing sequence as well. And he also did it in Million Dollar Legs. So he's kind of famous for that. But he, he uh, which was a W.C. Fields film okay. directed by Norman Zed McLeod. One of those kind of wacky, this movie has no meaning uh, movies that were popular in the early 30s. Which you like. That movie, that movie tests your patience. <laughs> if you, if that's what you like, that movie can really test your patience. Okay. Even if you like it, you can kind of be like, mm. uh, so then we get Fior- uh, Fiorello or Chico playing a wonderful piano solo. Oh my gosh, it's the best. Having the kids around him. I love, I love like Chico playing the piano. That was perfect. Yeah. And it was perfectly shot. Once again, sure, yeah. locked off. Yeah. You just watch the kids. Mm-hmm. And the kids' reaction is perfect. Yeah. And he's just, he's just not. It feels it. so natural. It feels he's like these kids are really into it. You wouldn't even know this is the 20th time he played the song for them. Yeah. He's trying, yeah. He's just trying to delight the kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and now you love the character. Like yes. you liked him before, obviously. Yeah. 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 But just like, yep. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. It's a really important part for, for Chico. And I think that was a good point you made when we were talking about Duck Soup, which is that you need that empathetic moment for his character where he plays music and you're like, oh, I like this guy. Yeah. Cause he, 
you know, he's fun and he likes music and he likes to play the piano with, with one hand doing the rhythm, the other hand just one, one finger doing the rest Ooh, of the song. Craziness. <laughs> and it's just, I, yeah, it's just done I so well. What I loved about it too is that, so he does one of the most amazing piano things you've ever seen. Uh, and uh, what is the song again? I'm forgetting what the song is. It's like a very, no, oh, it's a very, I can't remember. Yeah, it's a very catchy. Yeah, you a, knew it when you heard it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, ah, oh, that one. I believe I was singing along to the annoyance of the people in the room. <laughs> then, then you get Harpo. And you're like, well, Harpo's got to play the harp. But yeah. it's like, wait a second. Yeah. Harpo's going to play the piano. Oh. Well, wait a minute. Yeah. This is the last thing you do mm. is after you have a really, it's like someone going after Liberace performs, go, yeah. all right, well, let's get some <laughs> piano in. It's like, no, you can't. Sure. But then Harpo does it all in his own style yeah. so beautifully. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's just an amazing thing to, he doesn't talk Chico because Chico does Chico's own thing. Yeah. But that you could all have another great uh, comedy, beautiful mm-hmm. musical bit yeah. there and do all the great stuff with the stool. That's right. His bit is more about the, the equipment. He's just having fun with the equipment, the slamming of the lid yeah. on his hands and everything. And like delighting, that. again, the children who are just loving the clown. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this is who he is. This is perfect. Yeah. And the only, the only thing that really bugs me in that scene, and maybe it's the reason I, I dock at a, 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 an area is is him looking heavenward when he when he goes to the harp? I just I don't know. It just bugs me so much that little yeah that little moment. It's just like you don't need that. I don't want to see him looking heavenward. Like like here it is, my moment, my true love, the harp. Oh come on, guys, get over yourselves. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna begrudge Boo. Harpo loving the harp. Boo. Uh, I'm not booing Harpo because I don't think that. He necessarily wanted to do that. I think it's the I think it's the director who wants him to wants to have yeah. this little punctuation, of you know the honest isn't gonna you just did this crazy sequence yeah. so we got to have a little moment between you playing the harp and your crazy stuff on the piano ah, so we got to have you show like now I'm being serious look heavenward would it be nice if he walked up to it gave it a little wink and a little. Finger yeah, gun that'd be better. Like, all right, here yeah. we go. We can do finger cutting because that's Chico. Yeah, but, You'd have to like uh, look at it, give it a little nod, yeah, like "Hello, yeah. my old friend." Yeah, or a stroke again. or whatever like that, like a little oh, friendly a little pat or a little pat. A, yeah, you can't do the stroke. Pat. That'd be a little too sexy. Yeah, you gotta like do something. A little pat do, would be where fine. Where do you pat it? Where's a where's on a the place top? To, like on its head? Oh, on the top is fine. I yeah, guess. yeah. Sure. All right, you gotta be careful on that harp. Standards and practices, my friend. But I just feel like that moment is just too. It's too maudlin and too kind of self serious. Okay. Fair enough. It brings out the blech in me. All right. So he plays a beautiful song, and he plays, which does plays, not bring out the black in you. No, that's, uh, that is one of his best harp solos, yeah, I think. Beautiful. And he, it's a reprise of Alone, the song that uh, Kitty Carlisle sings earlier in oh, the film. Oh, nice one. Okay. Oh, I think the song that uh, I think a song that uh, Chico played was uh, "All I Do the Whole Night Through Is Dream of You." Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Mm, there you yeah. go. That's right. Which is a perfect song for him because yeah, it has a simple it has a simple melody that can be. Yeah. yeah, I think they look for songs for Chico to play that could be easily played on one finger because yes. that's his style to do bunk, as much as he bunk, can. Bunk. Yeah, to do his little dancing finger where he plays, yep. where he kind of slides oh, it's it. so good. It is so good. He's and then so and then good. Harpo does the broken hands running all over everything. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, yeah, it's it's such good, a yeah. great scene. Yeah. Now, Harpo played several instruments, not just uh, not just the harp, but also the piano, the ukulele, sure. the clarinet, the flute, the recorder. He, and you know why? Because there was no internet back then. So you had to make yeah. your own fun. And I think, yeah, and I think that, well, yes, and, and he lived a life with a lot of downtime. Sure. That, you know, if you didn't learn to, to entertain yourself, you were really, really bored also, and could develop a lot of bad enter- habits. Yeah, if you want to be an entertainer, learn a bunch of stuff. Sure, that's part of it, too. Because they're going to, we need a ukulele player. Mm-hmm. Hand raised, but, now you're in the show. But, you know, like, you know, they'd ride a train somewhere, they'd get into town. Sure, sure, sure. They might have to wait at a station for another train to come. Well, this is the thing, when you, this, when, when you go back in the day and you see all the performers, 
And then you go, oh, it's uh, James Cagney. I was like, well, he's a great gangstery type guy. And is he tap dancing right now? <laughs> of course he is, because back then you did everything. Well, he started you know? as a dancer before. Absolutely. Oh, you know, well, that's yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. He's quite the singer. And is he doing gun tricks right now? <laughs> of course he is, because back then you learned stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the only problem with him playing the piano and having so much fun is that Laspari, who was standing on the deck with the captain, recognizes Tommaso. Oh. And while standing at the rail and snitches on them, and let's say that we hope he gets stitches later in this movie, uh, to the captain, uh, the captain, uh, is played by an actor named Edward Keane, but it's not really important. Uh, after a brief chase, the stowaways are caught, and I thought to myself, oh, for the days of monkey business, when you could just run around a deck and <laughs> the, 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 the crew could never catch you, but they do catch them. Yep. Uh, the next day, we assume they are. They're a little older now. They're easily yeah, easier a little to catch. slower. Uh, the... they didn't have Zeppo to distract them. <laughs> The next day, uh, finds Ricardo, Fiorello, and Tommaso prisoners in the ship's brig. Ricardo lies in the bunk while Fiorello paces, and Tommaso plays a cosa cosa on a, on a tissue and comb. Another instrument he played. Uh, his playing becomes more and more frantic, and Fiorello's pace increases <laughs> until he finally loses his patience and throws, uh, Tommaso's tissue and comb out the, out, out the, the porthole. And, uh, which is a movie porthole, by the way. It's one that can be easily opened, because most, on a boat like that, you would never have an easy to open porthole, no, because it'd be very comedic, dangerous. That's right. Comedic purposes. But comedic purposes, you want a porthole, because then a comic, comically huge torrent of water pours into the cabin, soaking everyone. Which, if you then later look, yeah. when they're looking out the wind, the porthole, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and you see how far the water is below. Yeah. Well, that was a heck of a wave that it hit sure at was. that point. Yeah, yeah something's yeah. wrong. There's a storm afoot. <laughs> just a small, just a small flu- a fluke small wave. There's a small fluke wave that happened to be passing sure. by at that time. Uh, it's a good, it's a good bit though. That's you, some good water coming in the portal. But didn't even rock the ship and its impact against it. The, nope. the room stayed still. <laughs> yep. That's that's when they used to have good ships. <laughs> Lollipop. <laughs> that's right. They, that's right. So. uh Tommaso attempts to leap through the porthole to retrieve his musical instrument, but is prevented by Ricardo and Frello, <laughs> but he sees a convenient rope hanging down in front of him. Driftwood, also conveniently leaning out of his porthole at this moment, perhaps to get some air, because the room is very small, oh, perhaps he was Ill. Uh, is able to swing the rope into Tommaso's hands, who, after some encouragement from Ricardo and Frello, which basically means pushing him out the window or porthole, attempts to climb the rope to escape. Yeah. And we get some great rope-based stunt work here. Now, is that... Who, who, is that Harpo doing that? Yes, it is Harpo doing it. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Like I was saying, unfortunately, because of Wood's insane uh, 20 shots per scene uh, rule, he had to spend an entire day hanging there while it was oh. being uh, hoisted. I know. So you imagine being dunked into the water yeah. 20 times, having to go up into the air almost to the... Now, uh, the water that's below there. It's just a studio thing. It's I don't a studio. Th- that's, a, personally, that's a tank. Personally, I don't think it's him... Going all the way up to the yeah, to I the don't crane. think so either. That would have been a stunt person and shot remotely. Yeah, that's not even that's involving, bad budgeting. Yeah, if you're yeah, if yeah. you're risking Harpo on a shot sure, like sure, that, yeah, yeah. No, it would have been a stunt person uh, being hoisted up to that and have just you, shot separately. Have you ever been in one of those harnesses? I never have. Have you? Yes. And how would you feel like spending a day in it? Here's my uh, here's my thirty second story about sure, that. Sure. Uh, so I'm going to do a uh, commercial, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea is that uh, it's us husbands, and we're it's Christmas time. Yep. And uh, and and but then we pass by like a, a Radio Shack, and we all go flying through the air, and then we get we're glued to the Radio Shack window. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're getting yanked like 40, 50 feet in the air uh, on these things. So the guy before me uh, is uh, says. Uh, you know, how much padding do you need? Uh, not much. Okay. And then I see him do it. And then, yes, he's, he's not, he's suffering. 
he's got there's a little bit of bleeding there's not good times so when i when i do mine i'm like give me all the padding you got pad me up bro because yeah. uh, i was wearing a winter coat so it didn't matter yeah sure yeah so if you if you don't have the proper amount of padding that's uh that gets painful fast wow. even when you've got the proper amount of padding it's a it's a heck of a thing because you're uh you're maintaining your weight like yeah. uh, all your weight all is, your weight is in areas that would not normally <laughs> yeah. uh have your weight exactly yeah. yeah yeah you're uh you're supporting yeah you're supporting your weight on on this you sure are and what uh, I learned from the fellow ahead of me so but yes for the for the stuff that was studio bound so they have like the side of the ship and a tank of water on the studio lot, yeah, and they do that sequence. Oh. That was all. That was all Harpo. And again, the twenty times. Oh, that's awful. Poor Harpo. Yes, uh, he's eventually able to climb to uh, up into the window of the famous aviators. We find he comes into this cabin where they're all laying together, sleeping in a bed. He so gets when a wicked look on his face when we see them laying in bed together, sleeping, then we know they're all brothers. Ah, that is the international sign of characters who are brothers. If just, they're all sleeping in a bed together. Like they, they all look like. Um, uh, like uh, Seagar characters to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do, really. Yeah, yeah the uh, yeah. Popeye, uh, yeah. Popeye illustrator. Um, uh, so, yes. So, we, yes, as you say, Harpo gets a wicked look on his face. Uh, he finds a pair of scissors. Once again, he doesn't have a pair of scissors in his pocket. He has to find them in the room. Yeah. Irritating. And he begins to cut one of the brother's beards. And then we cut to the boat. It's, I guess it's docking in New York. And there's a reception committee arrives to welcome the famous aviators. Uh, Driftwood, unable to miss a trick, declares himself their manager <laughs> and enters the cabin only to see the three aviators bound and gagged in their bed. And from his reaction, I don't think he knew what was going on because mm-hmm. he's very surprised and he yes. closes the door and quickly goes outside. Yeah. But as quickly as he shuts the door, it opens and we now have Ricardo, Fiorello and Tommaso come out dressed as the aviator in the aviator's costumes with their impressive beards glued to their Sorry, faces. I'm blanking here. Did you mention the animation? Oh, of the moths? No, I didn't. Yes. When he lifts the beard. Yeah, a moth goes flying. Yeah, around. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting moment. Yeah, good gag. Very, and again, it just felt like these three cartoon characters have just dropped <laughs> by. Uh, Driftwood shuts down the welcoming committee, but we cut to the, uh, so he's saying, well, you know, tearing up their speech and saying, don't worry, we'll tear up the mayor's speech later. Uh, <laughs> but we cut to the four of them on stage at City Hall with the mayor, the police, and other officials surrounding them. Fiorello is called on to make a speech. He improvises a nonsense story. Uh, detailing their attempts to fly across the Atlantic oh, without enough so gas. Good. <laughs> it's a good thing. So good, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, Henderson, a plainclothes police detective, becomes suspicious after Fiorello, Fiorello's less than impressive speech. Good Henderson reactions. Yes. He, yeah. He's a really good yes. guy. Wait a minute. <laughs> kind of fellow you need for that kind yeah. of thing. He's played by an actor named Robert Emmett o- O'Connor, who uh, made a career of playing cops or tough guys. Sure. Uh, he was in Eddie Cantor's The Kid from Spain, a movie I think I've mentioned every show we've done so far, so I figured <laughs> I'd toss it in one more time. Yeah. And also in the classic musical uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. To yeah, go back we're going to owe that movie money soon if you didn't mention it <laughs> one more time. What I like about this is you get the – first of all, visually it looks great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a situation where Groucho's off to the side so yeah. he can wisecrack. Perfect. Yeah. And then you have the ticking bomb, which you always need. Of like, eventually they're going to ask Harpo to speak. Yes. You know, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. But, but again, you've got to just distract people to forget that that's the thing that obviously is going to come up. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and yeah, this we flew halfway across, ran out of gas, had to fly back. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. We were so three good. feet. We were three feet from landing, ran out of gas, had to fly back. Fly to fly back. <laughs> um, the other interesting thing so about that scene <laughs> is the way that it's shot. It never shows a huge crowd. 
But the way that it's framed, it gives you a sense that there's a huge occasion. Yes. But you never see a big crowd of people. You just see the policemen and stuff around them. Yeah. And it gives you the sense of, of scale. It's interesting how it's done. It's very well done. Um, I could see them doing that uh, live on stage. That's the kind of thing that you really want to get the timing right on the jokes yeah. and the reaction. Yeah. Nice verbal business. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was done as part of the... Uh, and especially if you saw that on stage with Harpo drinking the water yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. That would especially be good. That's yeah. one of those things that I understand why you have to do it, especially if you're doing 20 takes. Yeah. you got to have some cuts. Yeah. But if you just saw that one after the other, <laughs> so good. So as you said, we have the uh, ticking time bomb of Tommaso being called on next to speak. He begins uh, stalling by drinking endless glasses of water. But in doing so, he loosens the glue holding on his beard, basically giving away the game. Yeah. Uh, all four of them are able to escape, though, without being caught by the police. Let me cut to Driftwood's hotel room. Oh, wait, before Oops, sorry. we do that. Yeah. Where was the moment where Driftwood actually is talking to them? And he's, uh, it sounded like he was talking gibberish. I looked this up. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. And it's actually, uh, they played the dialogue backwards. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what the dialogue was? No, what was it? Okay, so what they said was, uh, <laughs> they say, did you hear what he said? He said you boys are imposters and you absolutely don't belong here at all. Did he say that about us? I've never been so insulted. He said that he didn't mean it and he wants to know if you'll stay here. So that was that was what was uh so then so then Harpo then or Kisses Tommaso the then guy. yeah and well, ends up with the beard yeah. ends up with the beard on him yeah and so then they escape then we cut to uh as I was going to say before you really interrupted me no, just kidding it's fine <laughs> it's fine I, I want you to do that because sometimes I you know I don't think of things as important enough to note but I I, I want you to bring up things that you liked in the movie uh, as we talk about these things so we cut to Driftwood's hotel room the following morning I assume the following morning again it's Mm-hmm. This movie doesn't really give us much sense of time, but that's fine. The cuts, cuts are work. Cuts work too. They attempt to eat breakfast, but Tommaso takes all the food for himself, as well as attempting to eat the china and others, other characters' clothing, like, uh, uh, Fierlo's tie, for instance. And, uh, uh, what I like about the scene, though, is watching Groucho watch Harpo, because he's just smiling the whole time. He's just, like, glowing with pride at his brother's <laughs> behavior. Like, he's just so enjoying what he's doing. Yeah. It's just business. And it's fun because, yeah, he's like, business. oh, I just, you know, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying what Harpo's doing. Yep. I like my brother's sense of humor. I'm enjoying this myself. I think that's the dynamic that works with the Groucho character when it comes to his, to his brothers. Yeah. Is, uh, um, he will make wise ass comments about it. Yeah. But he's not annoyed with them no, legitimately. No, no, yeah. Until yeah. a little later. Then we do get a scene where he actually is legitimately annoyed. But it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's mostly delight at the chaos. Yeah. He yeah. likes, he likes it and it's like sometimes he'll instigate chaos and sometimes he'll just watch it play out. Mm-hmm. But he always enjoys when it's happening. They are suddenly interrupted by a knocking at the door and it's Henderson, the plainclothes detective, searching for the stowaways. Mm-hmm. He makes a thorough search of the suite. And as he does so, uh, Driftwood and the three stowaways, re- well, actually, the three of the stowaways go outside. Ricardo takes the t- opportunity to escape along the, along the edge right. of the building. And we've got to establish that in the bedroom, there are four beds. There's four beds. That's right. There are four beds. There's two and- cots and one cot for an alarm clock. And so, yeah, the, the cop is, uh, well, what's, what, what's, this? you're like a hermit, huh? Yeah. He yeah. was a hermit. What was a hermit with four beds? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Then a, a joke that's a, it's a bit of a rough joke. We're like, I counted like a, a thousand sheep last night, like yeah, yeah. per bed. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah. want me to sleep with a sheep, would you? Yeah. Mm, I don't know about that joke, but still. It's pretty silly. It's a silly joke. Um, and then some really good business that, again, if I think if you saw it live on stage would have worked even once, better. Yeah, once again, it was done as part of the stage thing. And yeah, so it's tough with the cuts. It's tough with the cuts to give, give you that sense of flow. Uh, 
But yeah, they pretty they're pretty good though because they don't really they more kind of let the camera go back and forth between the two rooms. They don't really cut yeah. as much as they they, they could. Yes. They kind of they kind of go back they kind of pan back and forth between the two the wall and the cop the wall. does react very well. Yeah. There's just that one moment where he has to like fight with the bed more than more than necessary to to allow the characters to get clear of the ah. of the window. But that's fine. That's just all part of the fun. It's good acting. Uh, so finally, uh, after all this is going on, Henry's been getting more and more confused by the disappearing beds and. Uh, from the one room, he stumbles into the room, which has been made to look like another suite. Yes. With Driftwood reading the paper, and Tommaso, dressed as an old woman, uh, doing his uh, gookie face, which was uh, the face Harpo liked to do, which was named after a a, car- a guy who was a cigar roller when he was a kid in the neighborhood. Ah. When he was rolling cigars, he would get this concentrated look on his face where he would bite his tongue, and then he would start to like puff out his cheeks as he was working. And so Harpo would start to imi- started imitating that and became quite the hero in the neighborhood that is able to imitate this guy whose name was apparently was named Gookie. Yeah. Uh, and he would imitate him. Uh, and basically he would just put his tongue in front of his mouth, blow out his, his cheeks, purse his lips and cross his eyes and make the Gookie. So he's making that face. Yeah. Uh, while Gross, knitting with, Gross knitting with, got a beard. Gross has got a beard and he's knitting with spoons while sitting on on uh, Fiorello, who's playing the uh, rocking chair. And there's a small thing which, to, to me, worked was like, because Groucho was the only one who didn't have a beard in the last scene. Because so, if Groucho, if any of the others were wearing a beard, it wouldn't yeah. work because they'd look like they did before. Yeah, yeah. This is just like a unique thing for Groucho. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good picture. It's a good good gag. Uh, and, and a well-done, well-timed sequence. You really can see them. And it's interesting because um, I was reading an author and he was comparing the sequence to something that Keaton might do. But Keaton would do it absolutely smoothly flawlessly in front of your eyes so that you saw every little move whereas the marxes make it as loud and bump bumpy and confusing as possible you know and that's part of their charm i think mm-hmm. is that you get all the talking you get all the the double play you get little aside yeah, yeah yeah and it works really well all right so um now we see that ricardo has escaped and he comes to rosa's room where they happily reunite mm-hmm. and then they're talking with each other and then there's a knock on the door so rosa has ricardo hide in her bedroom so that no, so that this whoever it is won't know that he's in her room, uh, and it's Laspari. Laspari enters and he attempts to, you know, sort of more. He attempts to more than just flirt with her. He starts to try to yeah, put some moves on, put some moves on her. And Ricardo comes out of the bedroom to defend her. And despite the innocent situation, Laspari, Laspari uh, makes insinuating comments about their relationship, yeah. provoking Ricardo to strike him as you have to. <laughs> and then Laspari makes some threats and then he leaves we cut to the new york opera house now this scene doesn't really make a lot of sense to me although i like it a lot driftwood comes in in high spirits saying hello to all his employees but here's the thing he had nothing to do with the opera in uh, with this opera company when he was in italy mm. it's gottlieb's company mm. driftwood was was uh is um claypool mrs claypool's agent and he has used her money to buy her right you know buy her prestige in the opera but he is not an employee of the opera so no one knows him he's only been in town for a short amount of time so that it's a kind a, of a, it's kind a of weird problem, yes. it is a logical problem and yet the scene is so great because he comes in <laughs> and he here's the doorman the you know the uh, or this the um we can call him i guess the stage manager sure uh greets him with great fondness he comes in and says hiya folks to the symphony they're all happy to see him he goes up the elevator uh, the elevator operator, operator is excited to see him. The elevator operator is played by uh, Otto Fries, who played the uh, second uh, mate the, with the big fancy mustache that got snooped oh. in a monkey business. Um, he's he's super happy. Everyone's happy to see him. It's happiness all the way to the office. But then 
he finds his name. His name, which is, was painted on two days ago, is now being scraped off the door uh, by somebody who says, you know, this can't be. This can't be done. He says, "Yes, it can just be." Watch look, me, yeah, just watch yeah. me. Uh, by the way, in, in old timey movies, if you wanted a job that was like a good job, mm-hmm. scraping names off doors was great because <laughs> that happened a lot. Sure. Yeah, it does. Did seem to happen again. A lot, I was watching it? that scene. This is just, just me, like on a technical yeah, yeah. note. Yeah. Just watching the name get scraped off the door and just going like, "Oh, you better get it right in this one take, or you're going to have to paint the name back on." And well, they did. They had to do it twenty times. Oh my god. Well, how do you do that? Because you got to wait for it yeah. to dry. You replace the you replace the frame with another that you've already had. You or got or you just twenty glass frames. Or, or you you each fra- each take you just do a little bit of the name until by the time of the last take. Because ah. you don't know when this take is. This but take could have been. Say, it's got to say enough of the name. That yeah. makes sense. But this that is this may have been been take five or whatever. Yeah. We don't or, know where it or, was in the. We'll see. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll see. We'll, yeah, so, but, but great. Also, by the way, that he treats the regular people. Yeah. Uh, in a way that you you go like, oh, he's a good guy. Yeah. And yeah. it's an important thing at this point sure, to go like, right. he's a swindler, he's a con guy, he's a this guy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, all right. But hey, everyone here likes him that should like him. Yeah. Good. That's so right. It's just an important point. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. For him I like now. that. Yeah. I like that. Because yeah, he's not, doesn't the second up to people that matter. No. He's friends with people who don't matter. Yeah, and that's a, a sign skate, of a... he's a he'll, uh, yeah. he'll uh, run. Oh, by the way, sorry, we missed out. One of my favorite things, which was on the boat, uh, where he where he enters quickly as the as the gangplank's going up. It's like, is it too late to pay my hotel bill? Yes, it is. Works for me, or fine by me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that right, works yeah. for me. Something like that. And then, it, and the same way he walked in, he just immediately walks out <laughs> like a duck. It's just great. <laughs> Such a good little bit. It is good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, now in high dudgeon. Which is the best kind of dungeon to have. He storms into Gottlieb's office only to find not just Gottlieb, but Laspari, yes. Henderson, and Mrs. Claypool. Dun, dun, dun. And under pressure, you feel like Mrs. Claypool is under pressure here. Maybe, yeah. Mrs. Claypool has fired him. The previously cheery elevator operator has now turned against him, refusing to let him use the elevator and insisting he use the stairs. And when, when uh, he protests about how high the stairs are, he helps him by kicking him down the stairs, uh, which I, Actually, quite, like quite a bit because yeah. I, I always love people falling downstairs. It's one of my favorite uh, things. And the person who does it for a Groucho does a great job yeah. falling down the stairs. That's why you like our prime minister. That's you right. Can fall down the stairs. <laughs> you can fall down the stairs. We're, we're doing this from Canada, folks. That's and there's right. a clip online of you can, uh, uh, the prime minister showing his party trick of falling down the stairs. Yes, you can YouTube it. Justin Trudeau falling downstairs. Uh, he then he is then thrown out of the building, which is in great like not yes. just thrown out of the building, yes. literally thrown out it's of the building. Great. Yes. So you know that everyone, not just the elevator yeah. operator, but the stage manager too, of all of all turned yeah. against him. Uh, from, hey, Joe, how's it going to, yes. uh, we quick cut to the four friends despondently sitting on a park bench together. Yeah. Which is the one time that Groucho is actually saying to them, my life was great till yeah. I met you schmucks. <laughs> yeah. It's the one time that he's yeah. not delighted by them. Yeah. But he's it's quickly, off. it quickly turns though. Because oh, absolutely. When they are joined by, he's uh, off the bench by they're joined by Rosa after, yeah, after he's kicked off the bench and laying on the, sitting on the grass. And, and then, then the to cop not, comes yeah. by, get off the grass. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> They are joined by Rosa, who we learn at Lasparia's insistence has been let go from the opera. And that's when Grocho says it. We need a plan. Mm-hmm. And none of the other characters say it. He's the one who comes around to the fact that, you know what? I'm in, in for a penny, in for a pound. Absolutely. We need a plan. By the way, if he hadn't said it uh, before, he could have said it now. But middle of the film, he does use the line, of course, you know, this means war. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Which I think is the first time he says it. Yes. Someone else says it in the last one, mm-hmm. but he actually says it. That's right. In a way that uh, Bugs Bunny would duplicate a lot later on. <laughs> yes. So, that so we've night. we've now got a motivation for the third act. Let's That's get right. to her. Let's go. That night. That is good. This is the third act. You're right. Godlieb arrived at the lowest point. 
mm-hmm. in the screenplay. Yeah. That night. You were told to get off the grass. <laughs> that's how low it is, folks. Godlieb arrives at the theater for that evening's performance of Il Trovatore to find Driftwood and the others in his office offensively drinking his expensive liquor and smoking his cigars. And it's done in a very obnoxious way, I have to say. Yep. Driftwood attempts to strike a deal with Godlieb. He and the others will give themselves up if Rosa is allowed to sing. Godlieb will not agree to this. And after attempting to call the police, is knocked out cold. And he deserves it, too. A new plan kicks in the, into action. We see Tommaso's hand adding the sheet music for Tweet Me Out to the Ball Game to the score of Il Trovatore. No musician, when he sees this music, will know to ignore it and carry on with the actual score no, of the music. No, you mindlessly play you mi- you mindlessly play the song. Driftwood, dressed in Gottlieb's clothes, joins Mrs. Claypool in, his bo- in, 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 in uh, Gottlieb's box. Gottlieb, dressed in his underwear, manages to break out of the closet and calls the police. By the way, I liked uh, Groucho while talking to her. Anytime he has a chance to turn and talk to the pretty yes, girl yes, next to him is uh, talking great. to her. That's great. Uh, Driftwood gives a highly unusual speech to introduce the evening's entertainment. Because, yeah, they need to make a speech. She doesn't want to make a speech, yep, so he's making right. it for her. Yep, the check will return in the morning, I think yes. he says. Yeah. And, also, and that's a little thing where she's... Uh, and that's uh, that's a little the whistler. Thing. <laughs> yes, that's a little thing where it seems like, oh, like, what am I going to do? And then Groucho's helping her out, and it's a little bit of a thing where, like, oh, he's helping me out. This is nice. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, Fiorello and Tommaso appear in the orchestra pit, mm-hmm. bearing their own batons, and I like that they engage in a battle of stand tapping. Yes. That then turns into a into a sword, a, a, sword. a, a sword player fencing match, uh, and then uh, and then uh, Gottlieb. Dressed in Driftwood's tight clothing, confronts Driftwood in his box. Driftwood escapes the next box, making a Tarzan yell as he goes. And I imagine that was quite timely at the time. Tarzan being fairly new to the sure. to the movies, so that would have been a very much a a, a uh, you know topical joke. The music switches to "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," and Driftwood sells peanuts to the crowd on the floor. Yes. Fiorello and Tommaso leave the orchestra pit, going under the stage where they encounter Gottlieb, who is knocked out again by Tommaso, and then he and Fiorello lock him in a closet. They then disguise themselves in gypsy garb, Fiorello and Tommaso disguise themselves, and hide amongst the cast on stage. And this puts into that thing where it's like a, a rule. The police cannot go onto the stage. Even though there's all this mayhem happening around the stage, we cannot, we cannot, uh, you know, uh, you know, dirty the stage with our, with our feet. They have no jurisdiction. Yeah, we have no jurisdiction here. We can't, we can't go on stage while people are singing. That's right. That's another reason. We can reality. only stand on the edge of the stage making signs to each other. Well, also, they're going to have to get off the stage at some point. You know, you don't, and and let's just say, to be fair, people in the audience brought rotten fruit <laughs> and vegetables with them in case it goes bad, and that's, you don't want true. as a cop to have people booing you and throwing stuff at you. You're right. You you don't uh, you don't want that to happen. Godlieb is freed from the locker by his assistant and joins the police at the side of the stage, where he notices Fiorello and Tommaso. After several attempts to infiltrate the stage, he is knocked out again by Henderson, who mistakes him for Driftwood from behind because he's dressed as Driftwood. Tommaso then knocks out Henderson and then rejoins the chorus. Gottlieb and Henderson then put on costumes themselves and attempt to come onto this. They actually come onto the stage, but Tommaso escapes into the rafters, making several impressive acrobatic leaps amongst the ropes above the stage. Yes. Which once again was Harpo doing this. That's amazing. Yes. Yes. And he did it without any harness or anything. He just was swinging from ropes. Oh my gosh. Dangerously. And he even said. There must have been a net. He said afterwards, no, there was no, it was just him swinging around. There was no net underneath? He said afterwards, he, said it, was, he said it was so foolish because, like you can see, when he comes, when he lands on the catwalk at one point, he really struggles to get up onto it. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, it's almost like he's going to fall back down and he just struggles. <laughs> and he's like, oh, this is very dangerous. What are you doing? Uh, while swinging from the ropes, he uh, changes the backdrops on stage 
which was another joke that was used in Warner Brothers cartoons as well. That was, this is where it happened first, as Lespari sings, he finds himself in front of streetcars, a fruit cart, and the battleship. Uh, Tommaso also swings by and steals his wig, depositing it on Gottlieb's face. Tommaso accidentally comes down on the stage, but is able to escape by running up the backdrop and swinging over to a ledge where the fuse box is located. Yeah, running up the backdrop was pretty good. Yeah. Then he must have had a harness for that gig. Oh, of course. To do that. Yes, unless he's Spider-Man. Yes, that's, that's how he did. <laughs> he turns off the lights. Well, he really Donald O'Connor'd it. Because in the, in the, in the make him laugh sequence, he, sure. he does run up the wall and does a, that's Again, this is, this is me. Like I was like, I was, when I, when I saw him do that, I was like, oh, it's a shame there wasn't like stairs on the, uh, on the thing. <laughs> uh, he turns off the lights and in the confusion, Last Party is snatched from the stage, tied up in a box, suspended in the air with Fiorello and Driftwood. Uh, Gottlieb is now in a bind. He needs singers to finish the opera. Mm-hmm. And so Ricardo and Rosa have their chance. Naturally, they are triumphant. The audience loves them, even booing Laspari when he attempts to sing an encore. Yeah, good. Boo, Which is very good. boo you. And, and not just booing, throwing, throwing rotten vegetables throwing and fruit, <laughs> which they brought with them. But they brought with them because you know that's what you did as a as a New York theater going <laughs> yes. audience. You brought rotten fruit. This is you would think like they'd throw the bags of peanuts. Well, you know this is typical. It's typical of that time period where it's kind of like horse feathers. It's you know, there's a bunch of people who ha- have to. <laughs> equate their experiences of things to what they know right so their idea of university or college life is is what high school was or what elementary school was to them their their idea of what going to the opera is like is what going to vaudeville was like for them sure you know that's what they can't they don't haven't been there so they have to equate i'm just delighted by the idea of someone getting into their fanciest outfit (laughs) and going make sure you've got some rotten fruit in your pockets to, to throw yeah um just in case this goes south the interesting thing in the sequence was that uh, according to kitty carlisle uh, MGM wanted them to lip sync to actual opera singers doing the music for El Trovatore, but or El Trovatore, but but uh, they said no, no, we can do it. Like we could sing it, and so they did two versions. They did one with with the lip sync version, and they did one where they actually sang it. Yeah. And they much preferred the one that they sang because, for of course, sure. watching someone actually sing is is much better than watching someone lip sync a part. And it was their own voices and everything else, so it works better that way. Um, so then we get the rather impossible ending of the film where. Gottlieb now needs Ricardo and Rosa back because the audience loved them so much. Yep. So they're not going to be arrested. No one's going to get in trouble for what nope. they did. Uh, he takes responsibility for, for the stowaways. Uh, he gives Driftwood his job back. And Fiorello and Driftwood celebrate by attempting to negotiate a new contract, which, of course, is torn up. Yep. And then Tommaso copies them by tearing the back of Gottlieb's dress uh, Drif- well, it's actually got it's actually Driftwood's Jif- suit again, is it, or did he go back into his own clothes? I really oh, don't I'm remember. not quite sure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah he strange. does tear it. Yeah. He does tear the jacket, and then Ricardo and Rosa finish with a big encore, so the movie can end on a high note. And the Marx Brothers don't actually finish the film. In our view, we actually end the film on the the two lovers yep. who finally whose whose stars have finally crossed. Right. It's the uh, it's the old trick of if you end your film with people applauding, yeah, uh, you will trick people into thinking <laughs> that it ended on an incredibly high yeah. note. Yeah. Yeah. So you. Uh, you, you you prefer the Marx Brothers to be front and center in a Marx Brothers movie, yeah, and not supporting uh, what goes on. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I think, and I think that's why Monkey Business is kind of my A B film of 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 greatness. So I think that film, but despite its weak uh, third act, you know, has they're the center of the movie. Even though there's the gangster element to it, it's still them controlling the gangster element of the film. Like mm-hmm. Groucho does not get scared by Elkie Briggs and become the henchman of Elkie Briggs because he's frightened of him. He is so, uh, you know, fearless that Elkie Briggs can't help but be impressed and attempts to have him be a, be his henchman. But yeah. Groucho 
is no man's henchman and he just does what he wants anyway you know so um he's the agent of chaos yeah and i and i kind of refer that more and i think because uh, as a kid i loved warner brother cartoons so much that the early marx brother films and the early python that i loved so much was like watching a cartoon mm-hmm. and that's what i liked about it that it's cartooniness of what, what it made it appealing to me and this this film kind of steps back from the cartooniness and grounds the Marx Brothers. And I'm when, and let me just say again, I'm not opposed to it in this movie. But we're going to see as we proceed through the MGM films that what started off as a what start, you know what became a formula for them became harder to maintain mm. and to make the characters balance between being good guys and being the Marx Brothers. You know, and so this movie gets the balance Good perfect. Good guys who are bad boys. This movie gets the balance perfect between the mayhem of you know the opera sequence with the the kind of sucking up to the audience elements of him setting up you know giving Rosa the mash note and things of like that. You know, so uh, you know, but still, like I say, I'm you know I I love this movie. I think it's a great film. Yeah. I think it's hilarious. I think the you know the all the all the um, the kind of standout scenes of it are all perfect perfectly done scenes you know, couldn't you can't beat the stateroom scene in the history of the marx brothers uh the the henderson sequence the speech the you know there's so many and so many little sequences too like you know just talking about um tomaso clonking las Paria on the head and just and then uh oh you feel bad you know and just stuff like that you know it's so perfect that whole sequence is done it's done so low-key yeah it's sold so well and i doubt it's a sequence that was done live so that's impressive too that they they've sold it so well they knew how to, to get it tonally right it's very, it's very good. It's interesting when you were talking before about the original ending of Horse Feathers, which is uh, them playing cards yeah. while the university burns around them. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, then they're full agents of chaos. That's right, yeah. Things are burning. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. And Horse Feathers is also a little weird in that, like, they're, you know, you they're the protagonists, but they're not the good guys by any means. There's no, no reason they're good. No, they're, they're morally neutral. <laughs> not even morally neutral. They're like paid kidnappers. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to run a scam and ste- yeah. and cheat, yeah, yeah. and that's the whole thing. They just happen to be the protagonists of this, and so you count yeah. them as the good guys. Yeah. Whereas those characters are almost the opposite characters of the ones in this movie, mm-hmm. even though they have a lot of the same traits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would be the villains mm-hmm. uh, of the of this. Yeah, this- there's enough of the chaos, like of them having to take on the characters of the aviators and sneak off the ship that way. I mean, yeah. the script could have could have easily had them come off in any other way that was much less Yeah, you have the cops subversive. going after them, yeah, which is good. Yeah. One thing that uh, I was surprised they didn't do in this was uh, have have any of them really go up against the snobbiness of opera, but it feels like they weren't presenting opera in this as for the hoity-toy. Yeah. It seems like it's opera, you know, yeah. like people go see. Sure, yeah. We all do this, right? You yeah. dress up in your top hat, you go see opera. <laughs> That's what we do. Yeah. It's a thing we do. Yeah. Eh. And there's never a thing about like this is for rich people. Yeah, they don't really. Yeah, it doesn't really come out in the in the film. And I, actually, I like that better. It wasn't back because then. I am actually a fan of opera, and so I actually like the opera sequences in the movie. And I don't find those as boring as the as the operetta parts of it, where mm. it's like alone, like where Kitty Carlisle and 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 Ellen uh, uh, Jones are singing to each other. That to me is is boring because the song is boring. Whereas I like El, Trav- El Trovatore a lot, so I I appreciate watching the movie and them singing that part of the yeah, yeah. isn't it uh here's, here's a dumb thing i was sure. just thinking like you know the ending of uh 
the ending of Duck Soup should be the ending of this movie because that's when the fat lady sings. That's when it should be over. <laughs> but nope, not at all. No, we don't but I think, the, I think the ending's pretty good. I think. No, the ending's good. I think yeah. they don't oversell it and then they end with, with, the, with the lovers. It's your standard comedy movie ending, mm-hmm. which is we've got ourselves into such a predicament. We're all yeah. going to be like sent to jail for murder and be executed at dawn. Yeah. What's that you say? Oh, the warden, we saved his daughter's life. He says we're fine, and he we can live with him. Yeah. And we're all getting uh, jobs, yeah. jobs working at the prison this time. That's right. All right, it all works out just fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's that ending. Yeah. You gotta, who, because who cares? Truly. Who cares? We don't want to see the intricacies yes, that's of right. them that's plea right. bargaining and dealing with their lawyers. <laughs> you know, Six months later. Yeah. Yes, that's right. We find them on the park bench talking about their legal experiences. Boy, it was my lawyer tough. Yeah. yeah. Also, by the way, we saw we saw a court case with uh, Chico on trial last time, mm-hmm. so we're we're fine. We're yeah. good for all that. Yeah. It all wraps up pretty good. No, so far for me, as much as I have enjoyed uh, the rest, this one felt like solid movie. Movie. I loved how it was shot. Mm-hmm. I loved how it was lit. Mm-hmm. It sounded good. It was an MGM movie. Okay. I mean, it was just uh, they, they I'm were. Sure, I'm sure there's some MGM movies that aren't shot uh, great. Do you think they're all shot great? They put a lot of money into their movies. They put a lot of care into their movies. Okay. That was MGM. MGM okay. was the studio. Yeah. This looked uh, this looked up a couple of notches. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's a, and I'd also think like if people... Like they put more money into their movies than Paramount would, let's say. And, and, and the audience that probably started with them, with the Coconuts, also has aged up a bit. Mm-hmm. So if they had like, you know, uh, young people, they're a little older now and maybe they want something a little bit more... Hmm. So there you go. I am looking forward to seeing uh, what what happens next. I understand that probably things don't end up well. Uh, <laughs> that's the hint I'm getting. Context clues, but I'm still uh, I'm still up for the ride. Well, I'm I am looking forward to watching the the next movies. I mean, let me say, I mean, I saw A Day at the Races, uh, which is our next film, as a as a kid, and I loved it. I loved it a lot. I had no no problems with it. But I saw it as an adult with you, and I had issues with it. Mm. But we'll talk about those when we talk about the day of the races. Very good. Uh, if uh, we love to hear from uh, from you as well, uh, here's how you go about doing that. Because our other podcast that we do is called Sneaky Dragon. That's kind of a free form talk about anything uh, podcast. And so when you're hearing the word Sneaky Dragon and all of these things, that's why we didn't get a second email address. It's all sneaky dragon stuff. So if yeah. you want, if you think we missed anything, if you got something wrong, the, got something sneaky, right, this is just part of the sneaky dragon empire. Absolutely, uh, we love to hear your opinion. Uh, so go to sneakydragon.com. That is our website, and you'll find our sneaky dragon episodes and our full marks episodes. Also, our completely Beatles episodes. Also, our totally Tintins episodes. Uh, but under the episode specifically of this, uh, you can post uh, your thoughts. Yes, and we will normally reply. Dave will reply. Dave's a big replier. I sometimes reply. Uh, and if you want to email us, we're at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com, sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. We're also on Twitter, if you uh, like that sort of thing, at sneaky underscore dragon. We're on Tumblr, sneakydragon.tumblr.com. Um, and yeah, so uh, let us know uh, what you're thinking. And we'll be back in two weeks real time <laughs> with uh, Day at the Races. Or if you're listening to this, uh, binge listening uh, right away. Here it comes. <laughs> Come I've been David Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. All right. Thank you for your time. Bye. Bye, everyone.